WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 295. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 325 in the Embassy Suites Recording Studios in downtown Louisville, Kentucky. In this episode, an update on the CPDLC issue, runway status lights. Air Force could recall up to a thousand retired pilots. Watch out, Colonel Jeff. And not again. Air Canada, San Francisco, well, that and more, including the latest Plane Tales installment, the 49ers Part 2. So get all tr- settled in, tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. Flight 295 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, an aviation podcast where we talk aviation, all aspects of it actually, but we kind of focus mostly on the uh, airline world because uh, most of us here, your crew, are airline pilots. And joining me today, we have from the Carolinas, a doctor and a marathon runner, skydiver, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Uh, the lone non-actual airline pilot here. So, but... Yeah, I said eh. most of us. You said but, most you know, of us. There are exceptions. Exactly. You're very exceptional. I'm, I'm the exception. <laughs> yeah. So, But hey, look, it's two weeks in a row that I've been able to join you. So I'm starting a new streak here. It's, uh, it's very exciting. Very happy awesome. to be back and looking forward to a fantastic show this evening. We're looking forward to it as well, and also joining us from across the pond, an Airbus wide-body pilot. You can hear the Airbus sounds in the background there. This is from our APG community member Nevsky in Norway. He sent this to us a while back, and it's an awesome little piece of intro music for Nick. Nick is, as I mentioned, the wide-body Airbus captain for a European carrier, also a former RAF and RAAF fighter pilot. Hello, Nick. Enough of the wide-body there, Jeff. That's twice in one one intro. That's an (laughs) ultra-wide-body. But you're not a wide-body. You're a a skinny guy. Oh, if only. uh, If only I could claim to that. um, It's lovely to be back on this show. Thank you very much. And I was going to start off by calling you all Catholic terrorists. Because I have... (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) I have recently discovered that the term guy, when you're referring to a bunch of guys, uh, comes from uh, the terrorist who tried to uh, blow up Parliament on November the 5th, back in the 1600s, whose name, of course, was Guy Fawkes. And uh, that word, his Christian name, has uh, moved on down through uh, the centuries until it emerged in your country as a generic term for people, uh, our friends, etc. So I won't uh, use it in its old-fashioned term. I will use it in its modern term. It's great to be back on the show. Hi, guys. Excellent. Hey, guys. 
Yeah. <laughs> hey, guy, Fox. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. All right. And that's uh, November 5th. What's the little saying that you guys say for uh Remember, for remember 5th? the 5th of November. Oh, Treason something and plot. I don't know. I can't remember, quite remember that. I only if used to do that. We used to get uh, kids coming around with uh, a guy, which is uh, a sort of effigy uh, of Guy Fawkes uh, in a wheelbarrow, and they'd knock on your door and ask for a, uh, a penny, or actually nowadays they ask for a pound, um, to help them collect money to buy fireworks. Because uh, everyone, every town usually has a big uh, bonfire and a big fireworks night, and... Uh, You know, it's kind of celebrated that this guy didn't succeed in blowing up uh, the king and all of parliament. He was quite upset. He was, but he wasn't much to do with aviation. So perhaps we ought to put that back in history where it comes. All right, we'll steer it back to aviation (laughs) then. Uh, Exactly. Well, let's see. Why don't we uh, start off with uh, what have you been up to, Sir Nick? Uh, well, I have uh, had a relatively quiet time. I uh, did a long uh, flight back from uh, the Caribbean, where I was uh, called out to um, on, I don't know, about four days ago, five days ago. Uh, been to Barbados, and um, that it was a bit of a killer. I tell you what, when you're getting airborne around uh, like midnight, and then you're uh, you know, you've got an eight-hour flight all through the night ahead of you. It, it can be a little bit dispiriting. But we got into uh, Gatwick a reasonable time, and, um, you know, uh, I've had a few days to recover, so feeling good. I've been making slow gin. So um, that's uh, a mixture that is a lovely Christmas drink. Uh, you get slows, which are a kind of berry off a blackthorn tree, and you uh, put them into a container with lots of gin. And um, you leave it there for a few months. And when you come out, when it comes out, mix it up with a little bit of uh, sugar syrup. And uh, it turns into a lovely liqueur. So, And then it makes a great Christmas present. So that's what I've been doing today. Awesome. Mm-hmm. How about you, Steph? What have you been up to? You know, mm-hmm. you say slow gin. If I drink a lot of gin, it makes me go slow. Uh, some people makes the them same. go very fast, but uh, I don't know. Perhaps oh. you're the exception to the rule, Jeff. I don't know. It de- okay. I think it's you know directly proportional to how much you've consumed. Ah, there you go. There's there's the doctor speaking. Yes. So, Steph, have you been up to anything lately? So, not a whole lot, but I did take a trip to Chicago on Sunday, which. Um, this is my take two because I've been doing so much traveling that just kind of got like blocked off in my mind into everything else that I've been doing. Um, it was just a little day trip. We went to see um, the Carolina Panthers play the Chicago Bears at Soldier Field, and it was not a very good football game. So <laughs> um, I think the Chicago Bears defense scored most of the points in that game. Um but it was still a fun time. Um, got to see some cousins that were actually at the game and uneventful um, flights to and from Chicago on the same day. And I think we're going to talk about some more exciting flights that I've taken recently in in just a little bit. Um, But I also did want to mention that um, I, uh, while I was in Chicago, I saw a tweet from none other than um, the other Captain Jeff, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jeff. And he, Jeff Felmuth, was in Chicago on a layover and I had a chance to stop by his hotel and just say hi to him real quick. So um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, not expecting that, but it was a great way to end off the day. So 
beyond that, um, just a lot of uh, family time and staying busy at work. So there you go. All right. All right. So in my notes here, I have uh, like some upcoming meetup stuff. And uh, one of those is something that's happening in your neck of the woods, Nick, uh, this weekend. Oh, most certainly. We are meeting up at a local aerodrome. And I went down there yesterday, I think it was yesterday or the day before, um, to have a look around and chat to the people who run the little cafe there. And it's uh, quite a small grass aerodrome, but it's got a lot of history um, that stretches uh, uh, back really uh, mainly, I guess, to the Second World War. Uh, Goodwood uh, was part of the Tangmere sector. Uh, of fighters that uh, took part during the Battle of Britain. Well, they were, took part through the whole war, but um, they had a couple of uh, Spitfire squadrons based there. Uh, and so it's got a lot of history. It's a lovely little airfield. And we're getting together with as many people who can uh, make it. And we're meeting at the Goodwood uh, Aero Club Cafe, which is in the old control tower. So um, the entrance to the airfield is on the east side. Um, down Clay Pit Lane if you're driving in. And uh, if you go down there, you can pull into the entrance of the uh, uh, aerodrome and turn just before you reach the lovely-looking tunnel that goes under the racetrack because Goodwood also has uh, a racetrack because it has a lot of uh, motor racing uh, history involved. And turn left there and drive down uh, past the little shop to the uh, old control town. You'll find us there in the cafe it looks like a lovely little spot uh and uh, more importantly richard adams is going to meet me down there uh, a little earlier in the morning and he's going to take me for a flight he's a private pilot and uh, he's flying on down uh, and we're gonna get together and then we're gonna go for a little flight in the local area perhaps uh, take a look at the isle of Wight. so i'm praying the weather's going to be good going to take my camera and of course my recorder and uh, next time we get together hopefully i'll have a little um, meet up recording for you oh oh yeah and uh, the plain talking uk guys uh matt and carlos plus many other other listeners at both shows will be down there looking forward to seeing everybody oh, i can't wait to hear all about it mm, it'll um, be good i'm sure yeah, let's hope like the weather's good now in the Atlanta area, we're going to have a little, it's not going to be like a, a huge thing like what you're describing for uh, this Sunday in, uh, at Goodwood. I uh, love saying that. Um, we're, we're doing a little meetup here in Atlanta because um, one of our honored APG community members is going to uh, be in the Atlanta area. In fact, he's in the Atlanta area right now. And on uh, Friday night, we're going to meet up with Dave Abbey, the uh, aforementioned APG community member. And uh, I think Dispatcher Mike and myself and who knows who else will be heading because I haven't looked at the RSVP list. So I'm not sure how many, you know, who's, who's going to show up. I think, uh, oh, wait a minute. I think Chris Cochran, he, he was at the, uh, the meetup that we had at the 57th Fighter Group, uh, the last meetup in Atlanta um, and uh, others as well, uh, possibly. And if you want to meet up with us, uh, 6.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time at the Manchester Arms Public House in uh, near the airport. Uh, I think it's considered College Park on Virginia Avenue. And uh, I'll put information about this in the show notes. Of course, by the time you're hearing this is probably going to be history. So um, if you're listening to us live right now and you happen to be in the Atlanta area and you want to join up with some fellow Av geeks, again, that's the Manchester Arms Public House on Virginia Avenue. 
Um, let's see. Now, last week, Dr. Stuff, you were alluding to uh, something that happened with you on a flight somewhere, and you weren't sure if you could talk about that yet at that time. Yeah, and I, I can talk about it, but I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna be kind of vague with the details because. Okay. Um, you'll see why in a minute, but it has to do with the fact that I gave my contact info to the airline uh, in question, but I've not heard anything from them. And I don't know at this point if I ever will or not. Um, Would you rather wait uh, a little no. bit longer or? Okay. Uh, I, I think it's okay to talk about because I'm not going to give any, um, I mean, any real specifics. specifics. Um, yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry. Um, but I think it's an interesting story and it's something that I've certainly talked about a whole lot in the past. And, uh, Certainly, I've had lots of questions from listeners and other people who who know me. Um, you know, the question is always, as a physician, have you ever been called upon to um, attend to a medical emergency on an aircraft? And up until two weeks ago, the answer was no. Um, but that changed. So I was, uh, we had just boarded a flight, um, domestic flight here in the U.S. Um, again, I'm not going to really mention the airline or destinations or anything, um, kind of keep it to some general details. But I had just sat down. Um, I managed to snag an upgrade. So I was sitting all the way in row one. And I was, it was kind of a late flight. So I was kind of curling up with a, a blanket and thinking about falling asleep with my head against the, the window of this lovely Airbus A319. And um, uh, we could kind of start to hear some commotion from maybe halfway back in the, the cabin. Again, completely full flight, had just fully boarded. I don't think the doors had closed yet. We hadn't gone anywhere. We were still sitting at the gate. Kind of late at night. And uh, the gentleman next to me was kind of paying attention to what was going on. He could hear the commotion. And someone started, you know, saying, well, call for medical help or a doctor. So he actually stood up and and started moving to the back of the cabin. And I went up and, and got up and went with him. So the two of us got back there. And we were met by a third person who um, turned out to be a respiratory therapist. The gentleman next to me um, was actually an emergency room physician. And we encountered another passenger who was kind of slumped back in his seat and not responding. And, uh, you know, we were trying to figure out, uh, you know, see if he would be responsive and do some basic assessments, see if anyone was with him. Uh, at the moment, he seemed to be alone. We actually got him down into the aisle of the aircraft, determined he did not have a pulse, wasn't breathing. And basically, we started doing CPR on this gentleman. Um, at some point, a family member showed up who really only had information that the, the patient had kind of a heart history and didn't really know much else about his medical problems. Um, but while we're doing that, I, I was the one who started doing the, the actual CPR and chest compressions. Um, the respiratory therapist that was there was trying to work on uh, the patient's airway, but it was, I mean, you imagine the, the aisleway in an A319, it's really pretty tiny. And this guy was, I, I don't know what, uh, you know, his, his history was, but he was kind of a big guy, not, you know, overweight or obese, but more like a large basketball player, older gentleman. So not a lot of space in the aisleway there. Again, completely full flight and people were all in their seats. So people were trying to get out of the way, kind of, I was sitting kind of in between, um, or in, a, in a, a row of seats and trying to do chest compressions. And the emergency room doctor was going through the uh, medical kit to see what might be useful. A flight attendant showed up with the uh, automatic uh, external defibrillator. And so while I was doing chest compressions, I think the respiratory therapist ended up, ended up putting that on. 
Um, and we, we went from there and we went through about five cycles of CPR with the um, defibrillator before any paramedics ever showed up. So that's almost 10 minutes. We gave uh, three shocks with the AED and then it didn't really advise anymore after that. Uh, the medical kit was uh, left a little something to be desired. There was equipment in there, but a lot of it was more for emergencies where the person would be more responsive. And you, uh, you know, in terms of some of the stuff we might have expected for advanced cardiac life support, there was one small vial of epinephrine, which was actually difficult to use because it had to be drawn up and it only had a small needle with it. There were a couple of IVs that you could try to start, which we made a couple attempts at starting those which got dislodged just because of motion and space. And it, it just was not a great uh, situation in terms of trying to manage an emergency like that and trying to resuscitate someone. So, um, yeah, I mean, fortunately, we were still at the gate. The paramedics did show up. We were able to get the gentleman off the aircraft, uh, you know, and then there was uh, you know, they were still working on him as, as they left. And I don't know the outcome. Um, like I said, I'm still kind of waiting to see if anything's going to be uh, come of that and because I gave them my contact information for if they need any more information from me or any anything else along those lines. Um, what else? Oh, and then so after all of that was said and done, you know, the commotion of all of that, getting everyone back in their seats and uh, cleaning everything up, they had to uh, replace the AED, they had to replace the medical kit, all of that kind of took time. Again, this was kind of late at night. Um, uh, while they were doing all of that, our crew timed out. Um, so then we had to get off the plane. And I was like, well, I don't think I'm getting back on a flight tonight. But amazingly, they they had a replacement crew for us. And we actually switched aircraft to a much newer A319. Um, and we had about a three-hour delay because of all of that. So um, it, it was, I mean, it was definitely an interesting situation. Um, I kind of wish I knew the outcome, but... You know, so I that crew must point. have been like, was it the uh, it cabin was, crew or the pilot no, crew? No, the pilot, the pilot crew. Pilot crew timed oh, out. They must have been, they must have started earlier in the day. Then, yeah. Huh? Uh, this was one of the last flights leaving for the night. Oh. So, yeah, I'm not surprised. So, so uh, obviously all this training and everything else just kicked in and you probably yeah, didn't and feel I mean, anything. It was, but. Yeah, I know. I mean, it was just, you know, that's the three of us. That's just our our jobs. Um, you know, it's not certainly something that I do on a day-to-day basis. The ER doc does. And, you know, when I found out what he did and he found out what I did, you know, we had a really quick agreement. You're the one who's running this basically, you know, and we're going to do whatever you ask us to do because there's still this element of, you know, kind of CRM type of stuff. Um, you need to have a team, you need to be working together. You need to be doing stuff that makes sense and is logical and, and orderly. Um, and it's nice to have someone who's leading the team and that should be the one who does that on a regular basis. And that was the emergency room doc. So, and I would imagine it's much like, um, our job of flying airplanes. And when something goes wrong, you just don't, you're not sitting there reflecting on how it, how you feel at the moment. It's like, no, not at all. No, you just, you just how do, to do yeah. this. I and, mean, we yeah. just, we just both got, I mean, no one had actually made like a call for anything when all this started. It was just, we were kind of yeah. paying attention. He was paying attention more so than I was. So I'm, I'm thankful for that because, he got up and I kind of just vaguely overheard what was starting to happen. So I just went with him and yeah. So 
Cool. Well, the patient was very lucky to have three experts on hand, particularly an ER doctor, and uh, the fact that all of you would know what to do is uh, absolutely brilliant. So I guess he was in the best possible circumstances considering uh, stuff. Yeah, I mean, considering considering all of it, but I mean, that's uh, that's just a really tough place to have a medical emergency like that. And I'm I'm really thankful that we weren't actually in the air already because that would have made it just that that much harder. Oh, golly, yes. Uh, And two shocks and then no shock advised does not sound very... Yeah, I mean, it it doesn't sound very optimistic. We did three shocks and then two shocks not advised before the paramedics showed up. So, yeah. But... um, That's very sad. You know, it was still... um, I mean, huge kudos to everyone that was that was helping out. It was it was hard work. It was in a rather warm location in the U.S. and it was hot on the aircraft. And everyone was kind of, you know, it's a very fatiguing process to to work on someone and do CPR like that. And we had a lot of help. Um, I was doing the chest compressions. The ER doc did chest compressions, and one of the cabin crew actually jumped in and did uh, chest compressions too. So that was that was good. And we kind of rotated and took turns. Yeah, as you're yeah having done the oh. same with a neighbor of mine who unfortunately didn't uh, survive. I know both Julie and I, who are both uh, uh, working on him uh, at length, both uh, suffered um, and had quite a lot of um, muscle pain on, on our necks and shoulders afterwards because it's, it's, it's not something you're familiar with doing and so your muscles aren't really attuned to right. it. But, yeah. uh, no, it's a, it's a lot of hard physical work to do that. Yeah, so. But it's a small thing to do to try and save someone's life. Yeah, there was a, a question about what age the, the patient was or the gentleman was. He was older, I don't know exactly. So, but I'd probably guess at least 60s, but I'm not certain. So, and you, well, there you go. That for the grace of God. Exactly. And so, you, as you said, you're really not sure the disposition. No, not, the, not sure of the disposition. And, and like I said, I'm not giving a whole lot of, um, yeah. you know, there are more details, but I'm not giving those on purpose just because of. Right. Patient identification stuff and, and whatnot. So Exactly. Yeah. You're such a good person, Steph. Well, do what I do what I can. So, you know. I think it's what any one of us would have done in the same same situation. So Yeah. Very well, much. awesome. Well that was uh thank you for sharing that with us. That, yeah, uh, yeah. It was, was cool. it was interesting to say the least. So it was funny because then the ER doctor and I were sitting next to each other, so we sat down and, and actually had kind of a long talk and debrief about you know everything and we talked through we even talked with the cabin crew about stuff that we would have for suggestions and um we've sent some emails just things that we thought could have maybe made the whole process a little bit yeah i mean it's never going to be perfect in a situation like that but there were some things that we thought could have been suggestions or helpful for future uh incidents so yeah very cool very cool. And you said that the uh, airline, um, again, we're not identifying the airline, was pretty mm-hmm. open to like your suggestions. Yeah, they, they actually came and asked us. So, oh, very mm-hmm. nice. Um, both good. the both the cabin crew and then the, um, I'm assuming it was a supervisor at the of one of the gate agents came and talked to us too. So that's encouraging. Yeah, it was absolutely. Well, speaking of encouraging. Yeah, you know, we've talked about uh, EFBs. Here's my EFB if you're watching the uh, video. It's uh, made by Microsoft Corporation, and uh, Acme has been using these now for, I don't know, a couple of years. And uh, there have been rumors to the effect that we are going to be switching hardware platforms. And 
The uh, rumor was confirmed just uh, last week when uh, uh, operations, flight operations sent out a memo saying that uh, next year, May of next year, a lot of the news reports that I read said early next year, but I'm thinking May is not really early 2018 to me anyway. And of course, that's when it's going to be start uh, starting the uh, uh, the replacement of the current Microsoft uh, Surface uh, tablets to the iPad Pro 10.5 inch iPad Pros, which I'm very excited about because I'm a I'm a big Apple proponent, especially of their I'm actually surprised that they they went for the pro. That seems like a little bit of overkill on the size. But yes, it is. But okay. it's not the not the not the twelve and a half. Oh, inch okay. I actually didn't realize the, it came in because uh, Apple just recently, you know, they they did have one that was like exactly the same size as the iPad, but it was a pro version. And then they have the the big mom, you know, big daddy, you know, the twelve something inch, the, which is you're right. That's just too big. Uh, but they came out with a size kind of between the two, a gotcha. ten and a half inch size. So uh, that's what Actually, they decided I, to go I with. I don't find it just a little unwieldy on the flight deck because uh, I think the iPad size is just about perfect. But uh, um, I, I, I guess we could find room for something bigger. But we've got quite a big cockpit on a on a uh, Mad Dog. Perhaps I don't know how much space do you have on that. It looks like a pencil, yeah, so it must be quite small. Yeah. Well, you know, the the surface that we're using right now is about a it's ten something inches. I mean, right, it's, okay. it's roughly right. the same size of as what we're using right okay. now. Maybe a little bit bigger. Well, at least with uh, so. uh, the Pro, it'll have a decent uh, processor, and hopefully, it'll it'll uh, last for quite a few years before it starts to slow up. Right. Exactly. Good job. And, uh, well, so that's good news. About that. Yeah. Now, are they going to change Very the software? News. Uh, no, I mean, we're using the same software. It's just a different different platform. Um, it's okay. uh, the Jeppesen Flight Deck Pro software that we're using now, that you're right. using. Yeah, so. yeah. It's just that we've uh, just acquired a new piece of software to actually give us our paperwork. Uh, it's funny. Uh, yeah. We still we don't call do it that paperwork. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is I used for the first time on my last trip, and uh, and I was really quite impressed. It uh, it works extremely well. So uh, I mean, it's, it's nothing more than an electronic version, uh, but it's mm-hmm. a lot more flexible than a piece of paper because you can like zoom in and and uh, put more information on it, and you can easily transfer the route across to the Flight Deck Pro. It's uh, just mm-hmm. a bit simpler. I think that uh, there are um, going to be some some new apps because, you know, it doesn't translate exactly from the uh, Windows platform to the Mac platform. And uh, the other nice thing, I think, is that uh, they're going to be the Wi-Fi and cellular equipped models. And I think that Acme is envisioning uh, this to be our like go to device for communications and everything else. So it's going to be a a very... uh, Interesting experience, and I'm looking forward to it. Well, that's excellent. The CAA have finally uh, uh, agreed to let us use uh, these EFPs as our um, only source of information. So uh, over the next uh, few weeks, they're actually going to take all the paper off the flight deck, all the manuals and books which we've had in in there as a a standby just in case uh, something goes wrong with your EFB. And now we're just going to have a a standby EFB um, just to use. So that'll take a lot of weight off. And you multiply that by the number of sectors you do and the amount of fuel you use to carry it around, that'll save a lot of money. Yeah. Very, very cool. All right. Um, I had a quick little meetup in Baltimore. Uh, I, I picked up, um, um, let's see, I should play this. 
We're going green. Got a green slip on or over the weekend, uh, leaving on Sunday night. Was it Sunday night? Yeah, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. So right before this three-day trip that I'm on right now. And uh, green slip, if you're new to this airline world, especially the uh, Acme world, means that uh, they pay you double or they give you credit, double credit for the flying that you do. So if the trip is worth, you know, 15 and a half hours, 1545, I guess, then you double it. So it's a good deal. Overtime pay. And uh, ended up in Baltimore late, 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 actually early morning, Monday morning. But uh, after I got some sleep, uh, met up with First Officer Craig and Hillel. And they met up with me at the hotel. We walked over uh, along with my uh, First Officer Brent over to a place called Mrs. Shirley's, uh, which I guess is kind of a, uh, a popular place in the um, region. And uh, had, a, had a great breakfast and... Uh, and really had a lot of fun. And I made a recording with my with my phone. And uh, apparently I probably didn't push the button or something. I don't have anything here. So it was like four seconds. It wasn't really enough to get the context of anything. <laughs> so, uh, sorry so about that. Tell me, Chip, what do you do for ho- your hobby? You uh, sort of run a podcast? Uh, and you, re- you record stuff? things? <laughs> yes. I don't know what, I, what the heck I'm doing anymore with anything actually in my life. <laughs> Leave me alone. That's all right. I couldn't I remember what I did this past weekend, so we're, we're all yeah, doing really yeah. well. Yeah. Well, one of these days I say, you know, practice makes pers- perfect. Perspective. I can't even say that. Practice okay. makes perspex. What's that all about? Per- I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, finally, uh, speaking of First Officer Craig, uh, while we were walking back from the restaurant and we paused to make a recording <laughs> that, that didn't take, uh, he said, hey. I, I came up with this cool idea and I said, what? And he said, well, I'm going to send you some audio feedback and then you can play it on the show and um, everybody will know about my great idea. So here is First Officer Craig's great idea. Hey, APGers, it's FO Craig here. Um, as most of you know, uh, month of October, which currently is right now, uh, a lot of people um, you maybe see around have... Uh, are wearing pink for uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and that's a great thing, and I help support it by wearing a pink tie and pink epilepsy on the flight line. I also have donated a little bit of funds to breast cancer awareness research and uh, whatnot. So with November coming up, November is Men's Health Awareness Month as far as uh, just general men's health, uh, testicular cancer, prostate cancer. And so with Captain Jeff's blessing, um, I went ahead and started Captain Jeff's Mustache Crew um, with a company called uh, Movember Foundation. And uh, what they do is they uh, support and raise awareness and research of general men's health uh, testicular and prostate cancer by uh, you can donate money as well as just show pride like in October you wear pink for breast cancer awareness uh, in November you can uh, do a no shave November or a Movember and grow out a mustache or facial hair whatever uh, what kind of facial hair uh, trimmings you'd like to do I plan to uh, draw, uh, grow out my best uh, Captain Jeff mustache. I don't think I'll be as good as his, but I'll get, definitely give it my best try. Um, I'll give this link to Captain Jeff to put in the show notes. Um, but it is https uh, 
a colon, uh, two backslashes, moteam.co slash captain dash Jeff dash S dash mustache dash crew. And uh, again, I'll put have uh, Captain Jeff put that in the show notes. And it's a team that I created for uh, all the APG community. For those males who uh, want to grow out the facial hair, I don't know, maybe we got some females that want to do that too. But uh, if uh, you can uh, create a pay, uh, your own uh, kind of page on this website and uh, post a picture of your mustache or your progress throughout the month of November and you can also uh, donate money I uh, for the Captain Jeff's mustache crew I set the uh, mark at a thousand dollars I already donated ten dollars to help uh, kind of get this thing moving so uh, feel free to reach out to Captain Jeff and he can forward it to me or feel free to reach out to me for more information. Um, I'm at Greenhorn CFI uh, on Twitter or uh, FO Craig. Um, I'm Craig Pisic on Facebook. and So just feel free to reach out or re- uh, to me or Captain Jeff. And if uh, the link doesn't work for some reason or if um, got any questions uh, i hope that uh we can get a good group of people to join this and love to see what everybody's best impersonation of uh captain jeff's mustache is thanks for uh listening uh great job on the show guys i love it and uh just looking forward uh you're coming up on 300 episodes looking forward to another 300 so this is fo craig signing out talk to you later bye now uh, I, I'm I'm not going to cut any of my hair off, and if I grow any more, I just don't know if you're going to be able to see it. I could grow some buggers grips. I don't know. What do you reckon about that? <laughs> what is that? I'm not sure what that is. Is that some kind of a vegetable that you grow is in the it garden? Family uh, no, show friendly. Uh, yeah, I probably <laughs> couldn't. Uh, yeah, they're they're little patches of uh, hair that appear up on your cheeks. If oh. you if you shave your cheeks, Jeff, as you know, uh, if you leave the little patches up here on the, on your cheeks, they will actually grow quite long. And oh, uh, no, I don't. Uh, no, I used to know a uh, a fighter pilot who used to have a pair of those. But uh, and what are they called? I I won't repeat it actually because it's a bit rude. <laughs> okay. So uh, send me a text because I'm not familiar they're with They're called little term. patches of hair on your cheeks. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, which All you right. can grip people with. You can grip them if you want. <laughs> like, All right. Well, I'm going to I'm gonna put that uh, link that First Officer Craig gave us in that audio in the show notes. So if you want to join the fun and frivolity and uh, you're, you're, everybody's talking about my mustache as if it, it's, a, it's like a separate entity and has a like a it life is. of does, its own. It does oh, move okay. around a bit, you know. It looks a bit like a, one of those um, caterpillars you see, you know, a very hairy caterpillar. Okay. All right. I, I can go with that. All right. Well, thank you, uh, F.O. Craig, for that. And uh, so check it out um, if you want to join us in the Movember Challenge. All right. Um, let's see. Anything else before we move on? Oh, I don't think so. I can't think of anything. Let's do this then. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. What the heck?
Why are we singing the Java Jive on an aviation podcast? Well, it's because if you want to support the show financially, you donate to the Coffee Fund. And Java, Jive, Coffee, get it? Uh, you might want to join us in the uh, Coffee Fund cadre. And information about how you can do that is at airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. And since the last show, we have had a few folks uh, help us out with contributions to the fund. And let's see, let me pull this up from the Coffee Fund Classic Method. We have somebody named M. Karim gave us a nice donation. Thank you very much, M. And the other way to support the show, which is uh, becoming more and more popular, it's the uh, company called Patreon, and you can become a patron of the show at Patreon. And that means pledging a certain amount per episode. And it can be as little as a dollar or as much as $20 per episode if, you know, you have a lot of lot of dough and you really are enthusiastic about our show. And we do have a couple of those folks, actually. So we do thank them very much for that. And uh, we do have some new patrons since the last episode. And let me read their names. William Jan, Philip Crew, and Tyler Tolman. So we have three new producers over there at the Patreon page uh, supporting the Airline Pilot Guy show. And uh, as I said, we really, really do appreciate your donations to the show. Again, more information about how you can contribute and become a member of the Coffee Fun Cadre is at airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. I love the APG community, coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, boy. Stand by for news. Let's start off with, uh, I think it was last episode, we talked about the CPL, CPDLC uh, Iridium ban. Uh, several of the oceanic centers, uh, ATC centers, uh, decided to ban airplanes using uh, Iridium SATCOM. And uh, this from Larry Geezer. He said last week um, uh, we reported on an equipment issue with Iridium SATCOM that prompted a ban by a number of oceanic ATC agencies. Some aircraft were re- receiving massively delayed clearances sent by ATC via CPDLC, which is, let's say, controller, pilot, data, link, communications, I believe. Yeah, sounds good. One took the instruction and climbed 1,000 feet. Oh, even though the message was meant for the flight, the aircraft operated previously. Uh Uh-oh. Anyway, uh, today we checked in again with the Oceanic uh, ATC centers to see what their current policy is on the issue. And I'm not sure exactly when what the date is on this. And again, this is from uh, Flight Standards Bureau, I believe. Yeah, Flight Service Bureau. There we go. And uh, looks like the uh, Shanwick told the 
Flight Service Bureau that they are aware of the issue, reviewed it, but have decided not to ban the use of Iridium for either CPDLC or ADSC just yet. Uh, LPPO, which is Santa Maria, have the same position. So in this airspace, airspace, you can use Iridium for now. Gander, CZQX, said they did a safety analysis of it and decided not to ban it. They have all kinds of conformance alerts in place to prevent any problems from happening. So if aircraft deviate, they get notified immediately. Reykjavik uh, aren't concerned about the issue at all. They use HF most of the time anyway, it says, according to the Flight Service Bureau. Uh, Chile, Japan, Anchorage, Oakland, New York, all these centers have published NOTAMs instructing crews not to use Iridium for CPDLC or ADSC until the fault's fixed. And Auckland and Brazil have applied the ban to CPDLC alone. Use ADSC if you like. From Iridium themselves, they told the Flight Service Bureau, we've updated the their queue management system. Every minute there is a queue check. If there is any message that is older than four minutes, it marks as timed out and will not be delivered. This update was done at ground level, so it does not require any software updates by the user. We're still waiting on feedback from FAA workgroup on the fix, and it's sufficient to allow use of Iridium for CPDLC and ADSC. All right, so there's your update on that for those of you who fly internationally and um, it uh, is pertinent. Uh, let's see. This I thought was interesting. In the U.S., uh, the U.S. government is urging the world airline community to ban large personal electronic devices like laptops from checked luggage because of the potential for a catastrophic, catastrophic fire. The uh, FAA said in a paper filed recently with a U.N. agency that its tests show that when a laptop's rechargeable lithium-ion battery overheats, in close proximity to an aerosol spray can, it can cause an explosion capable of dis disabling an airliner's fire suppression system. The fire could then rage unchecked, leading to the loss of the aircraft, the paper said. And uh, so they, they conducted, a, let's see, 10 tests involving a fully charged laptop packed in a suitcase. A heater was placed against the laptop's battery to force it into thermal runaway, a condition in which the battery's temperature continually rises. In one test, an 8-ounce aerosol can of dry shampoo, which is permitted in checked baggage, was strapped to the laptop. There was a fire almost immediately, and it grew rapidly. The aerosol can exploded within 40 seconds. Anyway, they go on and talk about these tests and the fact that it overwhelms the Halon suppression system in uh, all these uh, cargo bays and uh, that... Uh, they think that this is something that should be adopted worldwide that uh, no longer allow the use of the, uh, or not the use of, but uh, carrying large electronic devices, personal electronic devices like laptops in the uh, checked holds. Um, go ahead. Just a couple of comments, Jeff. I mean, they're first of all a bit um, misleading when they say uh, that uh the explosion is capable of disabling an aircraft's fire suppression system. No, it's not going to disable it. The fire suppression no. system will work fine. It may not be sufficient to overcome the intensity of the fire, is what they mean, which actually they explain a bit later on. 
But um, I must admit, um, putting a computer in my checked luggage is something I would never do. Uh, it, once it disappears into that conveyor system and gets uh, passed <laughs> through the hands of... Goodbye. Uh, yeah, exactly Bye. right. <laughs> Hope you well, enjoyed your time with that, Yeah, that I mean, uh, Heathrow didn't get the nickname Thiefrow for nothing, oh. you know. Um, wow. That was during a particularly bad period. But, uh, I mean, whether you see your case again or not, or whether it's just been rifled through, uh, I don't know. But I'd never trust my uh, an expensive laptop to my luggage yeah, anyway. It's just kind of a strange that you would yeah. put something like that what in it does luggage. though is that if you've got it in your check in your hand baggage and uh, they stop uh, start refusing hand baggage uh, in the cabin as they do on the smaller commuters when the head boxes all fill up and things that may prevent them from insisting that you it goes in the cargo bay that's about the only restriction i can really think i mean it's um you know, it's always funny to me nowadays when I see someone pull out a laptop and start like furiously working on spreadsheets and documents and things on an airplane. It's just, I, I never use, I have a laptop. The only time I ever use it is when we're actually doing this show. Um, I just do everything else from my phone or an iPad because it can all be done there and it's just so much more portable and easy to use. Um I mean, I guess for certain lines of work, it's it's important to have the laptop and a full keyboard and and things like that and you need to be productive on a flight but um i don't know it just seems like maybe we're moving away from laptops anyway for stuff like that well it's kind of hard to do what i do on my laptop uh on an airplane which is like do audio editing right Uh, yeah yeah it's possible to do it on tablets and that kind of thing but it doesn't work as well as um you know the the real computer right yeah but for most people i think that uh as you say steph uh, iPads and iPhones or mobile like devices. Even for, I mean, I send a lot of emails and things like that. I do it all from my phone. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm more surprised when I see people opening their full size laptop to send emails on a flight or work on emails on a flight. I'm like, you could do that on your phone. But they don't or have tablet their, th- their their thumbs aren't quite as dexterity is you know, not... flexible as as yours. I guess. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. All right. Uh, oh, uh, regarding this, um, armchair pilot Jeff Gibson uh, sent us feedback regarding this um, ban or potential ban or recommended ban, I guess I should say. I should say. Um, I'm writing this to you as a concerned passenger. He's from, uh, by the way, Austin, Texas. He's a longtime listener to APG. And uh, he said, as a personal note, I especially like the episodes that detail flight systems and compares different kinds of aircraft, but that is neither here nor there. Yeah, that sounds like the one of our uh, APG crew members who uh, specializes in that kind of stuff. And we we agree. We're, we miss that too. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so he continues. I'm writing this to you as a concerned passenger. I'm reading news articles that talk about the danger of lithium batteries that are checked in the luggage, such as laptops, etc. But there is a new kind of luggage that I believe is equally a threat even without the laptop. Quote, unquote, smart luggage, which contains integrated lithium lithium batteries of their own, typically used to recharge the owner's phones and tablets, have gone unmentioned in the media and FAA safety reports. I fear it's only a matter of time until one of these forgotten batteries embedded in the smart luggage starts a cargo hold fire. I tried to voice my concern to the FAA so that they could include this new hazard in their battery studies. However, uh, it must have become lost 
uh, and bemused by the, no, he became lost and bemused by the FAA website. Do you know the proper place to voice such a concern? Yes. The airline pilot guy show. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but, uh, it may not, not go any further than that. Between us three though. <laughs> I know we have people that uh, work at the FAA that listen to the show. Perhaps they could, uh, you, you can do it anonymously if you want. You could, you know, I'm you sure there's a way to send, you know, yeah. whether that concern is ever acknowledged. Um, but if you, you know, that's kind of one of those uh, squeaky wheel gets the grease type of a thing where if you say it often enough and loudly enough, it might eventually be acknowledged and there may eventually be something done about it. Um, Liz says she's not aware of smart luggage. I have some smart luggage that you can actually put one of those um, battery packs into and I never actually use it in the luggage because it makes the luggage exceptionally heavy. Um, but I think if I wasn't going to be flying, like if I was just going to be traveling somewhere on a overnight trip in my car or something and I needed the extra battery power, I'd probably take it then. Um, but I certainly have lots of little portable battery packs that I'll take with me when I travel um, that you can use to recharge different devices. Um, and I think that kind of falls into the same category because they're not mentioned very often either. I do know that uh, at my airline, when people, you know, bring their carry on items and then we, we run out of overhead bin space and they say, I'm sorry, we're going to have to check your bag for free. Uh, but they always mention that take out any valuables, any batteries, uh, prescription medication that you may need. And it's amazing how many people don't hear that. And then you <laughs> get somewhere and they go, oh, I need my bag. And they, well, it's going to be at the final destination. Uh, as I said, in baggage claim. Medication that keeps yeah, me like, alive. I'm a diabetic. Breathing. <laughs> Did you not hear the part where you're supposed to keep your medication? And your keys. Yeah. Always keep your identification. And, and, and they also mention, you know, lithium ion batteries that you may have in your carry-on, which is permitted. Uh, but when they get checked, they need to be removed from that bag. I'm not sure how many people actually remove their stuff. If, if they Because it's amazing to me how... They don't really hear all the stuff that you're telling them, especially the part where you uh, will not get your bag outside the aircraft door when you get to wherever we're going. It'll be checked to your final, final destination. destination baggage claim. So yes. it's confusing out there, though, because a lot of times we serve cities, especially the airplane that I fly, that are also served by some of the regional carriers. Uh, yeah. And the uh, and those will just be gate checked. Yeah. Yeah. They gate check them and then they are back. You you wait for them at just outside the front door of the uh, airplane and they then you're reunited with your baggage. But it doesn't work that way on mainline, at least at Acme. So right. Well, I anyway. yeah. No. Well, listening skills uh, leave something to be desired this this day and age. I'm sorry. In what? general, I was just going to say, Willem in the chat in the, <laughs> in the uh, chat room says uh, the problem is check uh, Jeff. They check their hearing aids as well. <laughs> They check their brains is what they check. <laughs> I'm on vacation. Woo. Don't and have to think about it. I'm going to walk through the concourse and I'm going to just stop right in the middle. We're going I'm to be going turn at a normal around. pace. <laughs> like an abrupt I'm going to stop when I get to degrees. the top. You're, you're at the, the top of the escalator and then, you know, you stop. walk two feet and then you stop. Yeah. <laughs> no, All the time. keep going. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. Oh boy. Anyway. Usually, well, thank you. Yes. Say something very what? loud at that point. Like, <laughs> like what? Coming through. What a, what a wonderful place to stop. No one behind you. Don't worry about it. 
That is the definition of passive aggression right there, too, Jeff, in <laughs> there case you you're wondering. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think I do that. <laughs> I do. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's that's a, um, a, a very uh, energetic use of sarcasm. Ah, uh, yes, I'd say. yes. Well, it's that, too. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, good stuff. Uh, moving on. There is a safety alert for operators, a SAFO or SAFO. I don't know how they pronounce it. Uh, but S-A-F-O. And uh, I thought this was interesting. Um, and I'm, I kind of scratched my head on this one. I'm thinking, huh? Uh, so the subject in, in this safety alert is runway status lights or RWSL. So it's three words, but four letters. <laughs> I guess the RW is for runway. Um, this SAFO refers or serves to ensure that aircraft operators, pilots, and aircraft personnel are aware of the installation meaning and use of RWSLs. And the background is the NTSB lists runway safety as one of the top 10 critical transportation issues that need to be addressed to improve safety and save lives. To improve runway safety, the Federal Aviation Administration developed RWSLs, which is a fully automated system that aids in preventing serious runway incursions. The RWSL system integrates airport lighting equipment with approach and surface surveillance radar systems to provide aircraft and vehicle crews a visual signal indicating when it is unsafe to enter or cross or begin, continue, take off on the runway. The installation of RWSLs at some of the nation's busiest and most complex airports will increase crew situational awareness on the airport surface and aid in reducing incidences of serious runway incursions. And so I'm thinking, that's cool. I've, I've seen these. Have you seen these uh, as well, uh, Nick, at uh, some of the airports over here? I'm not, I'm not uh, sure yeah, if they have yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, most certainly. Uh, I think my eyesight has been permanently damaged by some of them because when you're sitting there on the threshold and you're told to uh, line up and wait, and because uh, there's crossing traffic uh, going across the runway a bit further down, as he approaches the live runway, the whole world just lights up red in front of you. And it's all these very bright uh, uh, red line of lights down there uh, as he crosses the runway. And then when he gets clear, it just turns itself off. It's a very good system, very clever. Uh, I don't suppose it's cheap, but uh, it's certainly effective. Well, apparently, and I thought that um, it, it went into a little bit more detail. But so, okay, that's interesting. We have these. Uh, runway status lights uh, in use. And I think that every pilot I've flown with has, you know, welcomed them because it, again, it's an autonomous system. Uh, but, and I, I swear I read somewhere that said that people were ignoring them. Is what? that in this? What? Yeah. How would That's they... the reason why they put this out is because uh, you, you cannot disregard. Well, if, it, maybe if, it's not that they were ignoring them, but they just didn't know how they were supposed to be used. And there just needs to be, are they just asking for more education. training for it? education? Yeah. Training and education. But yeah. I think, so here's the deal. You go up and they, they, the tower gives you a permission to cross a runway and then you see these red lights in front of you. Well, I guess some people are assuming that, well, they know the red lights are on, but they're giving they gave me, me permission to cross to anyway. Cross, yeah. And I can you cannot. see where that would be confusing, though, you know? I mean, I, I know mm -hmm. you cannot, but if you're getting mixed signals like that, if your attention is divided, it's like, well, we were cleared to cross. So I, yeah. I, I think just more education is probably the, the way to go. 
But yeah. surely the I, whole purpose is that you're, once they're on, you're not you're not cleared to cross. Exactly. Even if right. traffic well, I mean, I think that's where that the education are. needs to be then. So you know which set of instructions takes priority. So it's not the verbal instruction you just got. It's, you know, the visual instruction that you're seeing in front of you. So. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, mean, I know so this, this sounds like, you know, completely obvious and just a, a duh statement, but um, that I can see where that might be confusing for some people especially if they didn't get good training on it in the first place so yeah so i guess maybe that's the point they're saying look if the reason why we these things are going to enhance safety is because they are completely separate from humans they are using systems that are you know and so the tower controller human could make a mistake and give you authorization to do something that may not be safe and uh, so i I, makes me mad that i when i first uh, got this article apparently this is like an attachment on the article the actual safety alert itself but uh, the article prefaced with the reason why we're putting this thing out here is because we have had several instances recently where pilots have ignored the uh, the safety devices and uh, yeah. just want to make sure that people understand how important they are i mean obviously it's a safety alert for a reason because it's it's happened and it's happening and it needs to be clarified so yeah so if you're out there at an airport that has these things uh, I guess the thing to do is say, okay, I know you just gave me clearance to cross, but I'm seeing these red lights. Uh, did you really want me to? Oh, no, never mind. Stay you can there. always key that mic button and ask. Query. Mm-hmm. It never hurts to, to ask. Well, here exactly. it is from the horse's mouth from the uh, FAA. Whenever mm-hmm. a pilot observes, observes the red lights of the runway entrance lights, that pilot will stop at the hold line or along the taxiway path and remain stopped. The pilot will then contact air traffic control for resolution if the clearance is in conflict with the lights. Should pilots note illuminated lights under the circumstances when remaining clear of the runway is impractical, safety reasons for example, the crew should proceed according to their best judgment. Whilst understanding that the illuminated lights indicate the runway is unsafe to enter or cross. Exactly. There you go. Uh, I didn't even know we had any horses here. That is from the <laughs> horse's mouth. Yeah. The there's federal a, there's aviation a stable out back. Administration <laughs> APG headquarters. Okay. Yeah. Or the FAA headquarters. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on. Um, this now is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jeff still with us in the live uh, chat room. He's not. He had to go. Oh, uh, too bad. Well, um, I don't think this uh, is. Uh, specifically aimed at someone like Jeff and his uh, lack of recency of service. But uh, President Trump signed an executive order Friday allowing the Air Force to recall as many as 1,000 retired pilots to active duty to address a shortage in combat flyers, the White House and Pentagon announced. By law, only 25 retired officers can be brought back to serve in any one branch. Trump's order removes those caps by expanding a state of national emergency declared by President George W. Bush after 9-11, signaling what could be a significant escalation in the 16-year-old global war on terror. We anticipate that the Secretary of Defense will delegate the authority to the Secretary of the Air Force to recall up to 1,000 retired pilots for up to three years, Navy Commander Gary Ross, a Pentagon spokesman, said in a statement. But the executive order itself is not specific to the Air Force and could conceivably be used in the future to call up more officers and in other branches. 
So they go on in this article to talk about the pilot shortage, and it not only affects the civilian flying world, but also the military flying world. And uh, But we think that uh, Colonel Jeff is safe. He's not going to be called back. So, yeah, I, I think he'll be fine. That's quite a lot of pilots uh, to suddenly yep. whip out of the civil world, assuming they've all got jobs with airlines. Sure. Suddenly the industry is a thousand pilots short. Uh, yes. Whoa. I mean, considering we're already facing shortages, uh, what the, I mean, it's going to put some airlines in a very difficult position. Yeah, it will. For sure. Malaysia to resume search for MH370. This is from Flight Global. It says uh, Kuala Lumpur has entered a no-find, no-fee agreement with seabed exploration firm Ocean Infinity to resume the search for missing Malaysia Airlines flight MH370. The plan to resume, uh, resume the search in the Indian Ocean was disclosed in a statement by Darren Chester, Australia's Minister for Infrastructure and Transport. The Malaysian government is entering into an agreement with Ocean Infinity to search for Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. It's all very redundant. Um, Yes, we've already said that. Let me move on here. So the statement says that Ocean Infinity will look for the lost Boeing 777-200ER in yet unsearched areas where it is believed the aircraft could be. Uh, And the uh, government will provide technical assistance for the effort. No time frame for when the search will will start was provided. Um, a two-year-long underwater search funded jointly by the Australian, Malaysian, and Chinese governments for the aircraft formally ended on 17th of January. On 3rd October, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau's final report on MH370 stated that the possibility of finding the aircraft are better now than it has ever been, although that was their final report. So, (laughs) not sure. Um, The underwater search... Yeah, yeah, exactly. The underwater search has eliminated most of the high, prob- high probability areas yielded by reconstructing the aircraft's flight, flight plan, and the debris drift studies conducted in the past 12 months have identified the most likely area with increasing precision. Reanalysis of satellite imagery taken on 23rd March 2014 in an area close to the 7th arc has identified a range of objects which may be MH370 debris. This suggests an area of less than 25,000 uh, square kilometers that has the highest likelihood of containing MH370. And just to recap, the 777-200ER uh, was operating a flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing on March 8, 2014, when it mysteriously turned back over the Gulf of Thailand and made its way to the southern reaches of the Indian Ocean via the Straits of Malacca. Yep. Uh, there were three, 239 passengers and crew on board. So. All right. So... Hmm. It's never been a better time yeah. to discover this airplane. Never been a better time, as we write in our final report. We're, we will not continue the search, but there's never been a better time. <laughs> no. But, I'm just um, curious what the fee these guys will get if they find it. It must be worth their while because uh, they yeah. say it's a no find, no fee. But if we find it, what are they going to charge? An arm and a leg. Oh, that's probably yeah, not appropriate. Sorry. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, very insensitive. I think the sharks would have sorted all yeah, that that's out. That's true. Huh. Yeah, I guess Malaysia is uh, still very um, interested to have it found, interested enough to spend the money, go forward with yeah. this. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, Steph. Um, and finally, before we move sure. on to our feedback, this from John and Liz. They both sent uh, links to articles regarding this latest uh, little runway mix-up at San Francisco International. Uh, the FAA is investi- investigating a second incident at SFO. Uh, 
involving an Air Canada plane and its landing. Would you like to continue with this, uh, Captain Nick? It's an interesting one. Yeah, I had a quick listen. Um, the guy was presumably given a clearance to land. And then later on during his approach, um, I'm not quite sure uh, why they decided that the runway was no longer clear. Was it an aircraft that didn't get off in time? So two aircraft cleared onto the same um, uh, taxiway or holding area. And I guess they're wasn't enough room. room I think that's kind third. of what happened. Yeah, okay. They were kind of stacked right behind each other when they weren't. Is well, that right, Jeff? Uh, here, we're going to listen. We're going to listen to the uh, audio okay. right here. I have that. And then, uh, then we'll, we'll break it down. But I, I, I think I can describe, um, you guys are close, but not quite exactly right. Here we go. Okay. Air Canada 781, San Francisco Tower, 127, right, clear to land. Right, That's the subject aircraft. Uh, yeah, you tangle there, hold short to it left. Okay, so I'm pausing it for the moment. Uh, there was some time elapsed from the time that Air Canada was cleared to land and Southwest was the preceding airplane uh, that the tower controller was expecting them to make a certain taxiway, which is normal, but apparently they landed a little bit long, they passed it, and that you could hear him go, uh, what? Oh, okay, then continue down to Tango, which I'm assuming is the next taxiway, and, and get off the runway. And so now I think he's a little concerned that you know he's the southwest airplane is on the runway a little bit longer than he's expecting or anticipating so i'll continue with this tango hold short to your left southwest 3170 sorry 9 Air Canada 781, go around. Air Canada 781, go around. Air Canada 781, go around. New Zealand 7 Heavy, contact North departure. New Zealand 7 Heavy. Air Canada 781, go around. Six times. Hawaiian 12 Heavy, turn left at Echo Ground Point 8. United 2065 without delay, cross to your left center ground point eight without delay, please. Traffic company two mile final and they're fast. Yeah, we're, we're southwest 3117, pull all the way up to the whole bar, hold short to eight left. We'll do it southwest 3117, hold short two forty two eight left. And four, uh, 1736 to eight left. At 1736, San Francisco Tower, wind 2706, runway to eight left, third land. Air Canada 781, tower. Air Canada 781 Tower. Air Canada 781 Tower. Yeah, I got 781. That's uh, pretty evident. Air Canada 781, pull all the way up to the southwest. Get as close as you can and hold short of runway 28 left. Air Canada 781. That's like that. Pull uh, close to the southwest here. Southwest 3117, cross to left ground point 8. Cross 28 left, ground point 8, southwest 3167. Air Canada 781, cross 28 left, center ground point 8. Alright, 1.8, uh, cross 28 left, air ground point 8. Air Canada 781, taxi, bravo to the ramp. Bravo to the ramp, air ground 781. Possible pilot with deviation, 
here's a number you want to copy down. Not no. good. And so again, I think that it turns out, I think that the Southwest flight had actually cleared the uh, runway. And so the runway wasn't actually occupied when Air Canada touched down, but <laughs> we counted them as we were listening to the audio six times the controller told directed Air Canada 781 or whatever the call sign was to go around. And because, you know, we always know here, you can always go around you can if you decide it doesn't look right coming down. But if the air traffic controller tells you to go around, <laughs> you, you must comply. And so obviously, I don't think in this case that they were ignoring the uh, direction to go around. I think that, and this is my theory, and, and see if uh, you don't agree with me, Steph and Captain Nick. Sometimes when we're coming into a, um, an airport, we have the tower frequency on one. Uh, the, these communications panels that we have usually have two sides. So you have the left side with a frequency in it and the right side with a frequency in it. And you either have a button or a toggle switch. And my airplane is a toggle where you, you know, you move the toggle switch and then it it's that side of the radio. And then you pop it over this way. And it's the left side of the, of the radio. And a lot of times you're on tower and just to kind of, kind of be proactive and you're ready to switch to ground control. Once you clear the runway, uh, you have the ground control frequency set up in on the other side of the comm radio. And, and I'm not saying I've ever done this, <laughs> but you can sometimes put in a frequency and because we're so used to dialing in a new frequency on the other side and then automatically taking our thumb and moving that switch to the next frequency. So when you're doing, well, I'll, I'll tell you what I've, I've done in the past, even if Jeff has never done it. <laughs> yes, I have done it. Of course, everybody um, understands I'm being sarcastic. Everyone, I've done this before. I know. I know everyone's done it is my point. Yeah. And I've done it where I've put in a new frequency that I've been assigned to and I hit the toggle switch, but I just managed to like hit it twice instead of once and went like I saw it switch, but I didn't see it switch back to the previous one. And then I called up and, you know, stated who I was and what I was doing and the new and they're like, uh, no, you're, yeah. you're right back where you were. And you're like, oh, OK, sorry. Yeah. Can you give me that other frequency say, again? Flip the switch. Uh, now for us, it's actually, it's yeah, a little bit exactly. different, I guess, in your radio head, but ours is actually two separate uh, heads were two, you know, knobs uh, for the frequencies on one side and on the other. And it's actually like a mechanical little switch. I'm not sure what the Airbus Oh, no, has. it's, um, oh, the ours is actually just like a push button oh, okay. or on the, on the Sirius anyway. It's a, and most well, of them are just Let, a push let me button. describe what the Airbus has. Um, okay. The radio that you're currently using, uh, you make a selection uh, to change frequencies on that radio would be box one, two, or three on the VHF side. And that means the two uh, uh, windows with the frequencies are active for that radio. Um, the left-hand side is the one you're actually transmitting on. And the right-hand side, when you dial the knob, is the one where all the numbers change. So you can pre-arm the right-hand window. And then when you want to change frequency, there's a little button in between the two windows. You press that and the two uh, frequencies swap over. So the one you previously had armed moves into the active window and vice versa. Um, now, the common mistake people make is uh, either they 
don't press it, they press it at an inappropriate time, swap those frequencies, or much more common is to actually, instead of having the VHF-1 radio in those windows, they've got the wrong radio selected. They've got, and the only difference is that above those windows, there's a little row of uh, buttons and VHF-1 is the left-hand one, VHF-2 is the next one along, VHF-3 is the next one along. Now, if uh, sometimes you get someone, right, I'll, I'll arm VHF-2 to use, I'll say on ramp or something, and uh, they forget to select VHF-2, they put the frequency in, they swap it over, and they take the active frequency on the main box, which you're talking to air traffic on away from you, which would be VHF-1. Now, these guys checked in using their main radio, I suspect, VHF-1. Now, either someone switched those frequencies over, uh, accidentally on VHF-1 or someone was messing about with uh, VHF-2 and didn't actually select it, forgot that they hadn't actually activated VHF-2 and swapped those numbers over. But there is a third possibility which might have nothing to do with the pilots. Now, um, I suspect this has been modded out some time ago, but we did have a significant problem of um, uh, frequencies going quiet. And it was turned out to be a software glitch uh, in uh, the audio control panel, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and it was possible for your active radio uh, reception to just quietly mute itself out. And uh, it, you, was, you just didn't hear anything on it. And I think the thing to do was to turn it off and t- turn it back on again. And all of a sudden, people would be chatting to you. Uh, and the only way to work out what had happened would be going, well, it's awfully quiet. If you haven't heard anyone for a while, sure. what do you think's going on? And you could mess about with it, couldn't speak to anyone, you'd transmit, you wouldn't get a reply. Um, but that was some years ago, and I'm pretty certain... All that would have been modded out by now because uh, it was just a glitch in the software and uh, they rewrote and fixed that and obviously modified everything. So they're the options. I suspect it was finger trouble from the crew and they selected away from the frequency. Either that or they were having a very heated discussion and didn't hear their call sign like seven times. At a very inappropriate time. You know, exactly. <laughs> on final so, approach. Yeah. You know, as, as Captain Nick knows, he's flown there. I've flown there. That Those parallel approaches are very tightly spaced and it's always i mean it's the controller is just talking nonstop, and so there's constantly chatter on the radio there's a lot going on and if it were the case where they accidentally maybe advanced to the ground frequency then you'd have a lot of chatter on the radio maybe it didn't dawn on them that the chatter that they're hearing now on the radio has nothing to do with the tower controller, but now it's the ground controller or whatever. I mean, you know, there, who knows exactly what happened there, but if it was yep, complete yep, silence, then that was, should have been the big red flag. Like, why aren't we hearing anything at this What's very busy on? airport? Um, yeah, 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 very true. So, and, and it turns out that according to this article that, uh, as the plane got closer to landing, a tower supervisor used a red light gun to alert the crew to abort the landing. A flashing light gun is a standard protocol when an air crew is not responding to radio instructions. Uh, so, you know, apparently they didn't know to look at the tower to see whether or not there was a, uh, a light uh, because they probably didn't know was there was it a problem. Dark, Jeff? Yeah. yeah. Was it dark? Yeah, it was dark. Okay. Well, cause I wouldn't know in the dark where the damn tower was <laughs> yeah. and there are lots of lights yeah. on an airfield. I mean, there are lots That's true. of lights. And mm-hmm. if you got one extra red light, you'd be going, 
God, that bloke's got a bright nav light, or, you know, you wouldn't necessarily go, well, that's the tower. Yeah. You wouldn't necessarily even know where the tower was. It'd just be a light coming out of the dark. So uh, I, I really don't know how appropriate that is. Now, someone fires a red, a red fairy uh, flare uh, <laughs> over the airfield. I would have known what that was. <laughs> and for a start, it's very easy to see, very, you know, distinct. Someone fires a red fairy. I'd go, sugar, mm-hmm. that means I'm not allowed to land. Now, whether you could... You get everyone going around from every runway. <laughs> yeah, probably a little bit embarrassing. But if the alternative is to uh, to land on top of someone, uh, better that than the alternative. Right. Now, the only other thing I'm going to bring up here, and uh, I don't normally make complaints about uh, American oh, no. air traffic procedures. No, never. never. I've never heard you. I'm, I'm not at all renowned for it. First time. But <laughs> exactly. But. Uh, perhaps we should discuss the fact that this guy had been clear to land when there was obviously a lot going on ahead of him and a lot of potential reasons to be called to go around. Um, and so he's had a clearance, and uh, the fact that he didn't hear the calls are, are beside the point. The fact is that giving a clearance to someone at the distance he wants is not a fail-safe call, and that's no, my very sort of thing. Point well taken. That's one of the um, one of the downsides of the way that is it's commonly done here in the U.S. Uh, that uh, yeah, and when I say it's it's not a fail-safe call, what I mean is you then have to rescind it. If the guy doesn't hear you rescinding his clearance then uh, he's just going to land because the last thing he heard from you was you're clear to land. Whereas in the UK and most other countries that I fly to, you only get a clearance when the runway is yours and it's guaranteed to you. Uh, you are clear to land. Sometimes it can come very late, but when you get it, you know the runway's yours. Now, of course, they still can rescind that, but it's very unlikely because you get your, take, your landing clearance very late or can do it quite late compared with what happens in the States. And uh, there's usually nobody ahead of you and there's no one on the runway and nothing's going to happen. Now, obviously, if a vehicle suddenly blunders under the runway, air traffic will scream at you. But uh, that is inherently a much safer system. I agree. Uh, that, that is true. It's uh, So what, what's the difference? There's like a fail safe and a fail... But there are two different fail f- modes. F- and I think that uh, the, the way that... Uh, you guys do it is probably the the best way to do it uh, as for yeah it's not necessarily the easiest for air traffic uh, because air traffic get all their clearances out and well in advance and they're never going to forget mm-hmm. to give someone a landing clearance uh, but it is yeah it is but, you know, the, the safer of the as two far, as far as we're concerned uh, the operators in the, you're kind of in the mode that I have not received landing clearance I have not received landing clearance I'm you know thinking about the go around procedure and everything else uh, so you, uh, the system as we are using it, uh, you almost have a, a tendency to become complacent because you've received your clearance. It's a done deal. I'm, I'm, I've been cleared to land. It's possible they could rescind yeah. it. But. Well, and how many times have we talked about that? Where you know it should always be, instead of thinking, "Yes, I'm just coming in to land," I should be thinking about, "Yes, I'm coming in to go around, and if everything's okay, maybe I'll land yeah. instead." So. Now, here's an indication of just how important it is to get that state of mind correct in your head. We no longer say, uh, when the guy calls minimums, we no longer reply with the word landing. 
because that used to be our, our call, because when he calls minimums, you can see the runway and you think it's safe to land, you would call landing. We now just say continue, because uh, up to between like 200 feet in the runway, it's still possible that you could decide that it's no longer safe to land, and we don't want guys to be in the frame of mind that he's committed himself to land. We don't want him to feel that it's still uh, good and a safer decision sometimes to go around. So we've even taken that out of our SOP calls on the flight deck so that you don't ever put yourself in a mind where you think you're clear to land when you're not. So, you know, that's, that's, that's how seriously we take yeah. it. Well, probably a good way to go. Um, Trouble is that your system has been inculcated for so many years, I can't even see it changing. Most likely not. Even I can't see this. it changing either. But, yeah. you know, so. but, you know, we, for the longest time, we were using the term, um, you know, position and hold, and we changed to line up and wait. Uh, so who knows? Perhaps. Uh, how, how did that happen? I, I don't know. It must have been at a bar somewhere in, in the UK. Yeah, I think you're right. We, we lost Wait. our minds temporarily. We don't change anything here, right? We just keep plowing ahead with the same different. We're going to do it our way. That's right. My way or <laughs> the highway. That's how we've always done it. Dang it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. America. We don't, we don't care what the rest of the world does. America. All right. Well, that's I the news. It. A lot of news. Oh, on, by the uh, way, I found yep. out something interesting the other day. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, we were going on about pounds and inches mm-hmm. and things the other day and how you guys stick to this. Uh, do you know what you define an American pound? Um, yeah, it was a pound, American pound as. A pound? The official, yeah, the official definition in America a number of, of an ounces. American pound is, uh, oh no, it was a, it was a gallon. Sorry, and it was a U.S. gallon. The official, the same applies to pounds though. Um, the U.S. gallon is defined as three point one four seven two one liters. Oh, it's a no, nice kilograms. round number. Yeah. Yeah. Nice anyway, but what I what I mean is that the the American system is actually built on a metric system, such that a pound is no longer actually a pound anymore. It's actually uh, a, a part of a kilogram. Or no, no, a, it's been uh, reverse engineered is, that way. Yeah, I think you're right. it's reverse engineering. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a gallon is 128 ounces. Uh, it's, it's, it's a derivative. It's a derivative. Yeah, And I, for for that fact, I like the guys from uh, Stuff You Should Know. They Again, I um, mind you, they're, uh, they're Canadians. So what would they know? I don't know. I'm thinking. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I agree with that. But yeah, what do I know? <laughs> not yeah, much. What, yeah, you never trust anything you hear on a podcast. That's right. That is it's good advice right there. <laughs> never trust anything, including this one. Um, oh, by the yeah, way, exactly uh, speaking right. of landing clearances and all that kind of stuff, we're going to have some feedback that's going to be pertinent to that um, in oh very soon, like third up in line for our feedback on today's show. So we'll be talking a little bit more about that. Excellent. So speaking of feedback, let's do it. Captain, incoming message. Okay, let's start with some feedback from Becky, Rebecca. Uh, If you had a chance to go to Wings Over Pittsburgh, you had a chance to meet Rebecca. And she sent us this, Captain Jeff, APG Crew. I'm hoping to go into the recording studio tomorrow to record and submit the piece below as an audio feedback. Okay, she did, actually. There's an update. She sent me some follow-on uh, feedback. Uh, she recorded something for us. And so instead of me butchering this all up, um, 
let me play the wonderful piece of audio feedback sent in by Becky. Hey, Captain Jeff and APG crew. My survey trip to the Flight 93 Memorial in Shanksville last week proved to be more fruitful than expected. But before I share those items, I would like to share a few of the thoughts that I had that day as I envisioned my APG friends coming to the site, perhaps for the very first time. Everything about the site is appropriate, beginning with the long, slow, winding drive before any buildings come into view. You see the flight path. The architectural design and layout of each element on the contemplative campus slows down one's thinking. The exhibits are ordered in a timeline made up of mere minutes, and dignity and honor surrounds every individual involved. There's a gradual descending trail leading to the wall of stone markers, each one engraved with a name. It gives a feel like a slow descent of a normal approach, only their terrible descent was anything but normal that day. A locked gate prevents anyone from intruding on the hallowed coerced resting place, set aside for immediate family members only. There are places to sit and quietly think, and places designated to leave items of tribute, a guest book where you can leave your thoughts, but most of all, there is silence. Not enforced silence, but spontaneous. Visitors are not there out of macabre curiosity, but to pay their respects. People lean in and whisper to one another, barely audible as their minds try to grasp the chain of events, or they gaze in disbelief at the few relatively intact items recovered from the smoldering pit and debris field. So little was left unpulverized by the impact. Fragments of fuselage recovered were so small, it was as if they had been put through a wood chipper. Yet nearly intact was a parking stub or the front cover of a flight attendant manual, the owners of which had no idea what lie ahead. You wonder how any of this was recovered, but each item gave a clue or closure. You seek closure too. There is silence in the fields, as you stand at several observation points or make your way to the individual markers. Because the empty field was an abandoned strip mine, raised, still bare of trees, only thinly covered with grasses, there's a constant wind which makes a rushing white noise past your ears, not unlike the white noise experienced in flight. The silence is necessary. It creates a weight, a weight that you both want to avoid and want to carry for a while. It is hard to put into words, except that the heroes do have voices, and their voices will be heard in the silence. And as you stand and try to fathom yourself in their place on that terrible day and wonder what you would have done, you hear their voices. The 40-foot wind chime, appropriately named the Tower of Voices, will be installed at a distance from the other features and behind you as you walk the solemn glide path towards the visitor center, then further down the path towards the coerced final resting place of the 33 brave passengers and the seven crew members. I believe the silence I've described will remain intact, even though the constant wind will create a steady cacophony of tones, perhaps like the cacophony of voices the family members heard when they listened to the black box recordings and the phone messages of their loved ones, struggling to attempt to regain control of the aircraft. Some of the chimes may be sweet and melodic, like reminders of blue skies and once bright futures, and some of the tones will be low, conveying gravity and depth, reminders to those left behind to be brave and live fully. 
Even without chimes, those voices would persist. The added sounds will be appropriate, just like everything else at the park. When and if an APG meetup at Flight 93 Memorial Site is announced, or if you live near enough to make the trip on your own, you might think, who wants to relive all the churning we felt inside on that awful day? And on one hand, you're right. But you might also reasonably expect to come away from your visit with more clarity and chutzpah to face your own challenges. Now, here are some of the things which I did not expect to find on my trip last week. I did not expect that on my way back to the turnpike westbound, I've only ever headed back east from where I came, I drove right past an airport in Stoystown. Stoystown is right next to Shanksville. I've been to Stoystown dozens of times to help decorate the graves of my husband's great-great-grandparents who owned a nearby farm in the 1800s. I was quite surprised to stumble upon Quemahenning 2PN4, a private airport. While I was having a hard time believing my eyes, I think there was a large sign that said, Fly in Breakfast Club. So those of you with GA pilot's license will have to research that one and get back to me. I have a call in to the owner, so I can find out if some of you may fly in weather permitting. And also to just get in touch with any local Av Geeks who might like to join us. Or is it Ave Geeks? I always say Av Geeks. The second unexpected discovery came as a result of my visit to the bookstore. While just being my usual nerdy self, I chose to purchase a book written by the widow of First Officer Leroy Homer. It was not until I was in the waiting room at my appointment in Pittsburgh that I discovered something on the back cover of the book which will be of great interest to all of you, especially those who send feedback asking about ways to manage the expenses of flight training. Melody Homer has set up a scholarship fund for young people interested in becoming a commercial pilot. It has been granted annually for the last 14 years. You can read about it, and you can read about each stellar recipient, some of whom may be in a cockpit near you. Opening day to submit applications to be considered for the next scholarship begins on October 31st. So young APGers, be sure to check it out and hurry because by the time this episode airs, there may be only a few days or hours left to take action. Those of you who love spending your extra pocket money on promoting your passion of aviation, you can give to this foundation as well. I'm sure your contributions will be appreciated at any time. Here's a link, which can be included in the show notes, www.leroywhomerjr. That's just jr.org. If you are interested in planning an APG meetup next fall at Flight 93 Memorial, be sure to contact me on Twitter or Slack, where I am at Rebecca Selah. Not my real name. Till then, clear skies and unlimited visibility. Or was that clean undies? After wings over Pittsburgh, I can't remember. Your Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area APG friend, Rebecca. Thanks, Rebecca. That was awesome. Love that uh, eerie sounding music in the background. It was. Oh, the music was very appropriate, I think, <laughs> for the, the gravity of now, the... Now, Rebecca's with us right now in the chat room live, and uh, she said she was wrong about that airport, need to use Somerset County 2G2. Sorry. She said it would have changed a few things, but was in a hurry to get in get it in this week. She said that the one that she had mentioned in the, uh, in the audio recording that we just played... Uh, I'm not even sure how to pronounce that. Kamen, Kamening <laughs> is a... Grass strip. Well, hey, some of some of the APGers out there probably fly airplanes. They can land on the 
grass strip as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it just might not be the correct place. The destination yeah. was incorrect. Right. So. Anyway, a very nice job, Rebecca. And uh, so, yeah, keep us advised as to, uh, you know, the, the planning for a, po- a potential meetup at the uh, Flight 93 Memorial. Uh, it sounds very, very interesting. And uh, and thanks for that information about the upcoming scholarship, which I believe she said um, the deadline is the 31st of this month, just a couple days from now. Yeah, it's it's pretty time sensitive. And was there a link along with yeah, that? She, the... uh, she sent a link okay. and we'll put that in the show notes. And I would say that place was pronounced Kuemahenny. Yeah, well, I see the phonetic uh, hint that somebody gave there. Captain Nick. Oh, too. really? No, I was just using my innate intelligence. We're, okay. Is there something in the chat room? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we believe you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, Pinocchio. <laughs> oh, it, it, so the, the scholarship opens on the 31st, but it will fill fast. Fill so you want to get so your... still time yeah, sensitive. You want to be ready for it uh, right now. Get it. Yeah. Get your resumes. One minute past midnight. Yeah. Send it in. Okay, uh, some of the uh, initial feedback on today's show is kind of follow up on some of the things that we've talked about on recent shows. And uh, this gentleman here has his own podcast, uh, the Ready for Takeoff podcast. And well, I'll let him tell you what he wants to talk about. Hi, APG crew. This is George Nolly from Ready for Takeoff podcast. Uh, you were talking about the Iridium telephone system, and I thought that's really interesting because this week's major episode on the Ready for Takeoff podcast is an interview with Dr. Ray Leopold, the creator of the Iridium telephone system. It's episode 127, and it's a really fascinating interview. Uh, Ray was at uh, United States Air Force undergraduate pilot training when he got injured and removed from pilot training. And he ended up getting his uh, doctorate in electrical engineering, uh, went on for a full career in the Air Force, and then got hired by Motorola and somehow conceived the idea of a, a constellation of 77 satellites in low Earth orbit that would be used for satellite communications where you could use uh, telephones to communicate via satellite. Uh, The system was later changed to 66 satellites, and I don't want to ruin it for you, but uh, he goes into some detail into how the system got the name Iridium. It's really cool. Uh, Anyway, I thought you'd be interested in hearing about that. And by the way, Ray mentions uh, regarding GPS accuracy that during the Gulf War, uh, the military intentionally... uh, degraded the accuracy of the GPS system because they were afraid that the enemy might try to use some GPS guided weapons against our troops. So uh, there is the potential for GPS to lose accuracy, although I don't think you would get 25 mile errors like what you were talking about in the podcast. Anyway, just wanted to let you know about uh, episode 127 and the Ready for Takeoff podcast. This is George Nolly signing out. Thank you, George. And uh Guess what? We'll have that link in the show notes to his episode 127, uh, the Ready for Takeoff podcast.com. So please check it out. Thanks, as always, Excellent. George. 
Absolutely. And I think uh, the thing that worried us about the accuracy was uh, not that they fed in an error. We knew that the military could degrade it and give you a less than accurate signal. But the uh, ship's um, accuracy detection system indicated that it was working perfectly. Yeah but it was 25 miles away. Now, if you degrade the signal, then you actually get an indication that uh, it's not as accurate as it should be, and your accuracy uh, circle has enlarged. Um, but uh, what they were getting was, no, your system's absolutely fine, but you're 25 miles from where you should be. So you go, oh, that's really dangerous. That's why you, dangerous, it, nasty. you have to have some other backup system to kind of cross-check to make sure that you're something close to where you think you are. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. exactly right. All right. Awesome. Um, Tyler, speaking of landing clearances, we just talked about that uh, Air Canada instant incident at SFO. He says, thanks for, thanks for providing. You know what? Why don't one of you read this? Because I'm for some reason, my mouth is not working anymore. I'm going to give it to <laughs> okay, Nick. Okay. And you'll know why in a minute. So, Okay, thanks for providing an excellent podcast to listen to during long commutes and weekly yard chores. Uh, I'm currently an FO on the 737 variety in uh, the DC area on Acme Sam. I especially enjoy the weekly news and the lively discussions that typically follow. There's definitely a lot of knowledge amongst the crew. Oh, Steph just wants to eat. That's why she gave it to me. <laughs> Someone recently asked about landing Sorry, clearances. Sorry, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> and I recently uh, discovered this. It might clear up some questions, and it has good references as well. Answers to pop quiz, all about landing clearance. Question one. You are following another aircraft on downwind in an airport traffic pattern. Your aircraft and the other aircraft are the only two aircraft in the pattern, and there's no one waiting for takeoff. The aircraft ahead of you has been cleared to land. When may the tower issue a landing clearance to you? Answer. So we should probably note that this is U.S. specific. Yes. Yeah. 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 And what's the answer? answer? Tower may issue a landing clearance as soon as the controller can determine there will be sufficient separation between your aircraft and the aircraft landing ahead of you. Okay. So that could happen like beginning of downwind, I guess. Or as soon as you take off from your destination. Yeah, yeah. That would be like, a little I mean, excessive. Yeah. You're, you're well, an hour behind, so there's no way you're going to catch up. I'll give you a landing clearance now. <laughs> Cleared land. Exactly. So uh, the reference is uh, JO71106531010-1. Um, I don't think that's very. <laughs> it just rolls exciting, off the tongue. But there you go. <laughs> Exactly right. A, a landing clearance to succeeding aircraft in the landing sequence need not be withheld if you observe the positions of the aircraft and determine that prescribed runway separation will exist when the aircraft crosses the landing threshold. So that requires a lot of judgment on part of the air traffic controller. So question two, using the same scenario as question one, what is the latest point in your approach to landing that Tower may issue a landing clearance to you? Answer? Anyone going to guess? 
No. Uh, there is no defined latest point in the regulations. Your tyres must not touch the runway pavement until you receive landing clearance. With that in mind, tower may clear you to land at any point prior to touchdown. It is more likely tower will clear you to land 50 miles away. I'm sorry, tower will clear you to either clear you to land or tell you to go around prior to you crossing the runway threshold. Sorry, I was going to make a guess, but I just didn't have time to unclick yeah, my mute full. button while I was eating <laughs> my dinner. Sorry. Question three. It is uh, daytime and the weather is clear. An aircraft ahead of you has just landed as you approach the runway. Must the tower ensure the preceding aircraft will be clear of the runway by the time you land before issuing a landing clearance to you? And surprisingly, no. the answer is? Yeah. Yeah, it's no. I mean, I can't believe that. (laughs) So what they say is separate, uh, separate, separate arriving, oh, separate, like a verb, and arriving aircraft from. Oh, okay. Separate an arriving aircraft from another aircraft using the same runway by ensuring that the arriving aircraft does not cross the landing threshold until one of the following conditions exists or unless authorized in para 31010, altitude restricted low approach. Uh, The other aircraft has landed and is clear of the runway. Between sunrise and sunset, if you can determine the distances by reference to suitable landmarks and other aircraft has landed, it need not clear be clear of the runway if the following minimum distances from the landing threshold exist. This gets a bit complicated here. So why don't we just suggest people look up JO 711653103, run, same runway separation, because we're, we're getting into like uh, 3,000, 4,000, category one or two, which is perhaps a little bit uh, technical. Mm-hmm. Jeff's note. Oh, there's a Jeff's note oh, so here. I should say this. I'll leave uh, you for that, So Jeff. he says, um, <laughs> in most cases, tower will only issue landing clearance if the controller is certain the runway will be clear by the time you cross the landing threshold. The only situation I've ever seen a tower let one aircraft land with another aircraft on the runway is at a busy fly-in, such as the EAA uh, convention at Oshkosh, at military air bases and at civilian military joint use airports. Tower will let one military aircraft land while another military aircraft is still on the runway. I was going to say that as well. Uh, Also note that ICAO rules for the situation are the same rules applied by the FAA. However, in many countries outside of the U.S., controllers will only issue landing clearance when the preceding aircraft has actually cleared the runway. And then, you know, Captain Nick has has made a point of that um, in today's show and, and earlier episodes as well. In those countries, anticipated separation is not used. So I guess it could be, but it's not used. So, yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. there you go. Um, now, do you want to do all these? There's uh, quite there a few. Are, you know what? We'll, uh, we'll have a link to his feedback in the show notes. So you can read uh, all these uh, subsequent questions and references to the uh, joint order 7110.65. And... Uh, it would be very good homework for U.S. pilots who are considering, uh, oh, I'm actually, I'm not absolutely certain about this stuff. Perhaps I'll look it up. Okay. Very good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how, how was the uh, dinner so far stuff? Oh, so far uh, it's excellent. Very I'm, good. I'm envious. All right. Um, yes, chicken and corn. Mm. Uh, this, this is a good one. I'm, gonna, I'm going to um, read this to Nick. 
This well, hey, it's a, is it bedtime yes, it story, is. Jeff? Yeah, so, yes. Oh, so get, you know. Sit back and enjoy and uh, get all comfy. Put your PJs on. <laughs> Don't sleep yet, though. You have to listen to this. Oh, oh, oh. I really oh, okay. enjoyed the Plain Tales interviews with Ian Black. As I've mentioned before, my three years flying as just a navigator. Oh, this is from Jim uh, Howard, just a navigator. Um, tongue in cheek. Um so as I've mentioned before, my three years flying as just a navigator, EWO, uh, electronics weapons officer, I believe. EWO. EWO, I'm sorry. Yeah. EWO. At RAF yep. Upper Hayford flying the EF-111A was a highlight of 20 years in the U.S. Air Force. So Cold War RAF stories are always interesting to me. My crude pilot, and that not C-R-U-D-E, but C-R-E-W-E-D, pilot i thought the first one was much <laughs> <Yeah>. better <laughs> but you know you, you don't understand the context and you just hear crude and that's what i would assume that i was saying <laughs> yeah. or he was saying uh, my crew crewed pilot z bob cheated on me and flew with another ewo one day and came back <gasps> with an interesting story oh wow he told me that they had been flying around minding their own business when they were intercepted by an raf lightning this in itself was not unusual but in this case the lightning pilot asked over the radio if he could take their picture. That was fine with Z-Bob. Z-Bob told me the lightning pilot seemed to have trouble staying in formation while messing with his camera. So Z-Bob asked if the lightning wanted to take the lead long enough for the picture to be taken, which they did. I wonder if Ian happened to take a photo of an EF-111A Raven in the 1987-ish time frame. Jim Howard. Yeah. So well, I contacted Ian. Oh, you did? Thing. Yeah, I did. Cool. And he replied by telling me, um, let me see. Uh, interesting. I never shot an EF, trouble one, uh, air to air. A few uh, uh, F-111Fs. Um, I think this must have been Chris Allen. I'll look in his books as I'm not sure there's a shot of, of an EF-111. And then he sent me some pictures, and I've got a, uh, a front cover here of a book by Chris Allen, who was another lightning pilot who did air-to-air photography, called Fast Jets 2. And uh, in the interior of Fast Jets 2, there is indeed a picture of an EF-111, and the caption reads... Raven Beam 13 en route to its roost at Upper Hayford, the only other U.S. Air Force unit operating the EF-111A is the 390th ECS, 366th TFW, knowing it's technical fighter wing, um, based at Mountain Home Air Force Base, Idaho. So it looks like um, Chris Allen uh, actually did some work. Although the picture I'm looking at, which uh, Ian has rather awkwardly sent to me upside down. So you know what happens when you get your iPad and you try and turn it upside down? That, <laughs> that picture turns upside down again. Um, and the picture he's got is uh, actually in sort of um, echelon right. Uh, so it looks like this picture is of the lightning uh, information on the EF-111, not the other way around. So whether that's one of his earlier pictures that he was struggling with came out okay. Um, but uh, that's the one that's in Chris Allen's book. So it might have been Chris Allen. Is no, the okay. Very cool. Nice. Now, people in the chat room are making yeah. fun of my lighting here. 
apparently. Well, you're wearing a nice dark sweater, and the room has gotten very dark. So you should just see my face. The light is illuminating (laughs) your face very nicely. You're you're just looking like a hologram, actually. (laughs) Well, I try to turn on some lights. There's a lamp right over here, and it's plugged in, and I'm turning the switch on and off, and even the switch on the wall plate on the you know on the near the door, but that. That lamp is We thought maybe on. you stole one of the oil lamps from the Mad Dog <laughs> yeah. and we're using that yeah, to <laughs> light the... <laughs> it looks That's very funny. Halloween-y, actually. Uh, yeah. sorry. All right, we'll deal with it. Okay. All right, we um, will. Good thing this is an audio podcast. That's right. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> uh, let's see. It would be nice to have some light in the background, though, but I, I don't know what to do. There's no other lights to turn on in this room. Did I mention, I don't That's think fine. I mentioned on the show. We, we hear yeah, you just uh, fine. That this is it's like fine. a huge room. There it must be 1500 square feet um, of space here. Two living rooms with the uh, big screen TVs, um, a bedroom with two queen size beds and another big screen TV, a huge bathroom. It's amazing. Amazing. It's bigger than some places I've lived in That's, my life, like apartments and even small houses. I agree. I think so, it was, this is yeah. bigger than uh, our, my, our, my wife and my first apartment, I think. That they mm-hmm. spent all the money on the room and none on the lighting. Yeah. That's a well, shame. I didn't think it was going to get this dark. It's mood yeah. lighting yeah, the, for the, your... Well, is the sun yeah, gone down? Yeah, the sun does tend to. Um, the ceiling is, I think, like 14 or 15 feet tall. It's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Okay, uh, let's see here. Let's continue. Is this a bit of old news, this Virgin I don't know. Because that was some oh, time was ago. Okay. So is it yeah. even worth uh, talking about then? Uh, let's see what it the, was, uh, it was the article well says. Covered. Tuesday, September 19th. So like a month ago. Oh, sounds recent to me. Up to you. You can do it. Okay. Um I, you know, it might be Rob's interesting because it. of how uh, airlines have to, you know, weigh costs of doing certain things and weigh inconvenience and that kind of, of thing. Yeah. So it's this isn't news. This is just feedback. Yeah. So. Well, well, Francis was wondering about this anyway. And it was a um, we'll just I'll tell you what, we can keep it um, uh, airline anonymous. anonymous. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think that's, that's uh, necessary. I, after I, I don't work for them. So well, that's true. Well, that's we can true. talk about Virgin I work Atlantic. Frank then. Me red. Okay. Um, yeah. Not every passenger on Virgin Atlantic's daily late afternoon flight from Heathrow to Boston has enjoyed a smooth journey recently. Last Thursday, back in September, uh, flight VS11 diverted to Bangor, Maine, hundreds of miles short of its final destination because of bad weather at Boston. And on Friday, 226 passengers were delayed by more than 90 minutes because their Boeing 787 was used as a taxi to take a pilot to Manchester. As as passengers checked in, they were handed a letter which began, Your flight to Boston will be operating via Manchester today. In order for us to ensure our customers are able to fly from Manchester to New York today, we need to fly one of our pilots to Manchester. We have looked at other options to achieve this, but this is the only option available to use. The wide-bodied plane took off as normal from Heathrow, but spent barely half an hour in the air before touching down at Manchester. Passengers, did you notice I tried to say Manchester? Manchester. But you did it very good sounds job. right to me. <laughs> Manchester's the way to say it. All right. Manchester, <laughs> passengers had been told, you will remain on board the aircraft during our short stop in Manchester Airport. 
The plane spent around 90 minutes there because the original flight could not carry sufficient fuel for the transatlantic journey, and so the tanks needed to be filled before the plane could continue. Eventually, the plane left Manchester more than two hours late, but made up some time and arrived in Boston 96 minutes behind schedule. Passengers waiting in Boston for the Boeing in order to return to Heathrow were also delayed by around two hours. A spokesperson for Virgin Atlantic said, Unfortunately, one of our pilots in Manchester felt or fell unwell, and therefore, rather than cancel a flight, we took the decision to take a pilot from our London Heathrow base to operate the aircraft. The pilot was needed for flight VS-127, which eventually departed around the same time as the diverted Boston flight. Given the enormous cost of using a Boeing 787 to ferry a member of flight crew, it seems an extreme decision. Besides the cost of several thousands of pounds of extra fuel, Virgin Atlantic would have to pay extra air traffic control and airport handling charges. Also significant is the cost of an additional takeoff and landing in terms of wear and tear on the airframe and engines. The total bill is likely to be in excess of 10,000 pounds, as well as the additional environmental impact of an extra cycle of a large aircraft. The pilot originally intended to fly the Manchester-New York flight had fallen ill almost four hours before the Heathrow plane took off. No other pilots for that aircraft type, an Airbus A330, were available in Manchester. On Friday, a line-side fire closed the West Coast main line between London and Manchester, meaning that a Virgin train was not a possibility. The sudden closure also meant that the only domestic flights between Heathrow and Manchester operated by British Airways immediately filled up the rest of the day, or for the rest of the day. An ordinary taxi from Virgin Atlantic's base at Heathrow Terminal 3 to Manchester Airport should take three hours and eight minutes, according to AA Route Planner, though Friday afternoon congestion would have added to the time taken. While a helicopter or fixed-wing air taxi would have been much more expensive, it would have been cheaper than diverting a Boeing 787, which delayed the passengers by more than 360 person hours in total. The Virgin Atlantic spokesperson said, We never want to disappoint our customers nor make unnecessary diversions, and this is the only option available aside from canceling flight. VS-127. So So what they don't mention in this article, though, is what the cost is of a canceled flight um, and how that relates to... That's exactly right. Yeah, which I suspect would be much, much, much more. And then you have to do all those rebookings and, you know, yes, you've delayed some people by an hour and a half, two hours, but you would have delayed just as many people by much more than that had they not done this, so... 226 and passengers in a yeah. hotel. Mm. <laughs> wow, a lot of money. that's going to be expensive. Yeah. A lot of money. Yep. And uh, quite honestly, uh, the, the estimations, I think, here of what they guess it would have cost uh, are, pretty, um, are pretty much guesswork. Um, seven, several thousand pounds of extra fuel. No, very little extra fuel. Uh, you know, however much it takes to... Uh, um, get airborne out of manchester the the distance the aircraft flew would have been very similar it's just the extra fuel to actually do the takeoff which is uh, only a, a couple of tons probably um air, air traffic control and handling charges aren't huge um wear and tear in significant yeah. um, environmental that's impact. the most important impact. one that was, right? my yeah. favorite. <laughs> that was my favorite part i mean yeah, we've got to make sure we're going green ex- always extra, right like, yeah that's right so Whoa. We're going green. 
We're going green. We're gonna take care of the earth. We're going green. Yeah. So I mean, it it it's got engines at uh, takeoff power for like five minutes and then climbing out. That would have been a tiny bit more. Uh, quite honestly, it's something about nothing. I think just the unusual uh, nature of the event, uh, just taking a pilot and dropping him off in order to prevent the cancellation of flight is what uh, has caused the the furor. And I actually think she's thinking outside the box. Is the guys had obviously uh, looked at all the other options and gone. Uh, actually, this is the easiest thing to do. Let's do that. And they wouldn't have done it without someone uh, very senior giving them the go-ahead. So uh, that's probably the only way they could I do it. I think that the person that wrote this was probably on that flight and was pissed <laughs> off that they had to go to Manchester could first. Well have been. I guarantee that's what this is. <laughs> I, I was supposed to go to Boston uh-huh. or wherever they were going, and I had to go to Manchester. Yeah. yeah. Well. <sighs> I, you know, life is hard. Yeah, it is. Life yeah. is hard when you're flying across the pond. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. Well, thanks, Francis. Hope uh, hope that uh, kind of straightens some stuff out. You know, I think uh, Captain Nick is right. There are a lot of exaggeration there. Um, Zach said, hello, I've recently started listening to your podcast and I love it. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm currently on the course to get my PPL and have some questions for the real pilots. Well, that's, we're all real pilots here. What are the rules as far as phones in the cockpit coming in? Oh, I'm, I'm not a real pilot. Oh, anymore. Okay. Well, I can answer it. <laughs> Cause I don't coming, know. In, <laughs> coming in to get my PPL. I was very surprised when instructors text slash fly and do not mind when we do also, what's your favorite airport to fly into? Well, that's something entirely different. So we're going to stick with the uh, cell phone <laughs> in the cockpit thing. We've, we've already talked about favorite airports and not favorite airports and that kind of thing on previous shows. Um, you need to catch the syndrome, Zach, and then you'll, you'll hear us answer all those questions. Um, so Steph, it's not unusual, nor is it illegal for you to use your telephone when you're flying around on your general aviation airplane, right? No. And actually I was trying to find the, um, specific FAA guidance on that. And I've just not been quick enough here while, Mm -hmm. Uh, we were reading through his relatively short feedback, but I'm going to look for it here in a second. But um, you cannot use it on any IFR flights. Um, that is a no-no. Um, and certainly, you know, kind of general judgment states that if you really shouldn't be using your phone while you're in the car and driving and texting and being distracted, it's not a great idea to be using it in the aircraft either. Um, that being said, um you know, you can set up your headset to uh, connect to your phone, Bluetooth, and it will receive and make phone calls. You can send and receive text messages if you're within, um, you know, uh, cell service, if you have cell service where you're flying. So usually if you're at lower altitudes. Um, but then again, that may not be a great time to be sending and receiving text messages because that may mean you're in a terminal environment near an airport preparing for landing and or takeoff or um in a situation where your situational awareness should be increased or heightened. So, but let me see if I can I, I find learned something um, new there, Steph. I, I didn't realize that even in the GA world, like the part, uh, what would that be part 91 operations? Um, that, yeah. uh, that if you're on an IFR flight plan that you're not allowed to use your, your telephone device. I didn't realize that, but that would make um, sense. Sure. You, you navigate using it. Pardon? 
Well, if you're in a GA airplane, don't you navigate using your phone? Yes, you're, you're, well, you're uh, for flight, yes, but not the same as um, using like Wi Fi or well, and texting and yeah, let talking. me let me find it's it's texting and cell phone yeah. use, but um, I want to find the exact guidance on it because it's definitely widely utilized to use your for flight and everything else, especially right. for um, IFR flights, but. Well, you want to... Um, I want to find you that. Want to, Zach, I'm going to get back to you yeah. in just a second. Well, um, yeah. Because there, there is specific guidance on that, and I'm okay. not... I'll tell you what. Um, why don't we do this? This might be... This is about the time in the show that we normally play Plain Tales, and um, I think it might be good to do it right now. What do you think? Sure. All right. Like this is the uh, part two of the interview of Nij Demery. Is that the way you pronounce his last name, Nick? Yep. All right. Here we go. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales, The 49ers, Part 2. We continue our interview with Captain Nigel Demery, past president of the Hong Kong Aircrew Officers Association. After years of forced contract changes, poor rostering practices and intimidation, the pilots of Cathay Pacific have finally voted overwhelmingly for limited industrial action. So what did the company do to try and offset the likelihood that you were going to finally go on strike? Uh, they were prepared. Good Boy Scouts, be prepared. Um, the I became president in the September uh, 2000, and <laughs> I had some pretty good negotiators. Well, the previous team, actually, I inherited them, and... We, I think we got 117 goals to nil in the Labor Department just before Christmas. We, we got everything that we wanted um, on rostering to sort it out. It was an interim deal for, I can't remember, six months, four months, something like that. And we got everything. And management, you know, they're reasonably smart. They knew that there was trouble brewing and it wasn't going to get any better. Um, and... So they started preparing in the January after Christmas. They started preparing for what would come at the next busy season, which was the summer. And they started getting ready uh, how they were going to deal with it. And they were just going to take us on. Simple as that. So you think they were out to bust you? I didn't think that they were. Initially, I didn't think they were out to bust us, but it definitely turned into that. I looked at it as a matter of control. We're the management. This is our airline. You're the employees, you're the coolies, you're going to do what we tell you and you're not doing what we're telling you, so we're, we're going to give you a whooping and, you know, thwack you over the head with a, a cane stick and uh, until you uh, get back into line. that's. But actually it turned into, as you say, a, a union buster later on. And basically they knew that if they provoked us enough, we would, most people, we would go on strike. And so they prepared for a strike by the pilots in the summer. Tell me about the 49ers. Who were they and what happened to them? They would term the 49ers because um, 49 pilots got fired on one day on the 9th of July 2001. And, um, you know, I guess 49ers is a bit of a... Um, parallel with, uh, I think some Americans play football of some sort, you know. So it was just rolled off the tongue, the 49ers, and it stuck. 
Um, actually, 51 pilots were fired in total, um, but it was just 49 on one day, and so they called the 49ers. So management prepared for a dust-up. We, we had last-minute negotiations throughout the whole of June trying to rectify this, but management would not give us the key stuff, which was the rostering data. So we could say, look, this is how many hours a pilot works in a month. And so there was this difference of opinion. They had the data. I mean, we gave them the best data we could, but they wouldn't give us the precise data. And we were in the Labour Department again who were acting as mediators, conciliators, whichever, certainly not arbitrators. And um, the talks just broke down. And hey, presto, we deemed the 1st of July as our deadline. we got to get it sorted or we're going to take limited industrial action. As it happens, <laughs> 1st of July is uh, it was the anniversary of when China took um, uh, control of Hong Kong again from the Brits. So it was a national holiday. And we thought, actually, 1st of July is not politically correct day to start start your industrial action. So we delayed it a couple of days. And as it happened, a typhoon, hurricane, whirlwind, whatever you want to call it, rolled through Hong Kong, Typhoon Utor. And so Typhoon Utor actually disrupted the whole operation anyway on the 3rd of July. Management were pretty clever. They uh, then blamed all the disruptions on us. And so um, they said, right, we're firing 49. Um, well, we're firing, they didn't say the number, actually. That was a different issue. But we're, we're firing a load of uh, pilots in an effort to resolve the pilot um, dispute. And they assumed we would go on strike. Um, that's what they were planning on. We weren't ready for strike action. To go on strike, you've got to have three months' money for all of your pilots bankrolled, you know, because nobody's going to get paid for the foreseeable future. You've got to have all the resources backed up. We weren't ready for that. We hadn't had a strike vote. We'd had a limited industrial action vote. So we were taking, it was enhanced contract compliance, really, um, a go-slow, if you like, um, and but still within the contract. So strike is actually breaking the contract, saying, I'm not going to work. And so management, they can't fire you under the law, um, but if they don't have to pay you either. If you don't go to work, you don't get paid. So to do a strike, you have to do what Scargill and the Fleet Street guys worked, and you have to be prepared to support families for the foreseeable future and, you know, a year. And we weren't ready for that, and they knew it. So they had 23 aircraft on standby, wet-leased aircraft, uh, wet lease, um, flown by foreign crews, um, you know, aeroplanes and crews ready to shift all of our passengers. Um, so they were ready and they were out to bust us. Um, so they fired the 49 guys, expected us to go on strike, but we didn't do that. Interesting. How were those pilots picked? Yeah, they were um, a complete cross-section of the pilot community. Uh, there were 23 captains, 28 FOs, yeah, that adds up to 51. But they were targeting the union guys, like myself. Um, I, I was a president, so I was too high profile. In fact, it's reported that the DFO said, okay, are we going to go for the chief negotiator, John Warren, or are we going to go for the president, Nigel Demery? We can't take them both out. So, And they went for John Warren rather than me. So I didn't get fired again for a change. 
Um, but they took out four of the seven negotiating team. Uh, they took out five of the 20 general committee. So if you look at the proportions, they were targeting uh, the union committee and uh, workers. Um, they'd, they'd started, um, as I say, back six months beforehand, getting a list of people together. They interviewed the crew controllers, who were the people that rang pilots up on their days off and said, can you come to work? And so the crew controllers were the interface and they would say, oh, Fred's, Fred's difficult to deal with, Bill's difficult to deal with, whatever. Um, they looked at people who'd been taking sick leave. They'd instituted a sick leave program, absence management program, sickness management program, whatever you wish to call it. Um, pilots, by law, aren't allowed to go to work if they can't clear their ears. They might have a simple head cold. You are not allowed to fly an aeroplane by law if you are not fit. It's like you're not allowed to drive a car if you had too many beers, you know, um, or any beers. Um, so some guys had, you know, reported sick. They went on the list, and they got a list of about 180. And then I think it was about the uh, 5th of July, after we'd started the industrial action, they just put 20 managers into a, a room. They had 180 personnel files there, and they just went down the list of 180. And they, uh, if somebody, um, they'd say, doesn't matter, Nigel Demery. Um, oh, yeah, his uh, crew controller would say, oh, I've had problems with him there. A manager would say, yeah, yeah find him a bit bolshy. Okay, on the list fired you know sort of thing if somebody said oh, actually i found him quite helpful in such and such an area somebody spoke up if one of the managers spoke up and then the guy but they graded the guys and basically took the top 50 a good round number isn't it like the romans used to do with how uh, was a decimation and you know, that's uh, right, yeah. just take 50 and then the rest will go on strike you know it's a lesson so that's how they picked him really I mean, that effectively was illegal. There was no true justification uh, under law for firing these guys, were there? Well, very clever. The letter of termination basically said, we've lost confidence in you, and in accordance with your contract, you're getting three months' salary and live notice. No reason given. Where they went wrong was uh, the two managers, Tony Tyler and Philip Chen, went and did a press conference and um, they basically said, these guys can't be trusted, you know, they're, they're disruptive and what have you. And that's, you know, this is a way to resolve the pilot's dispute. And they put that, and they put their press notice on their website. And it stayed there for, I think it was eight years, somewhere in the depths of it. And hey, presto, when we were in court... The management saying, no, 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 we just lost confidence in them and fired them in accordance with the contract. And we said, no, it's for a reason. Look, it's on your website today saying that these guys were disruptive and what have you. Therefore, if they, if there was a reason, contractually, you should have given them a discipline and grievance procedure, i.e. a hearing where they should uh, be able to defend themselves and principles of natural justice. Not one guy went through that procedure. Uh, discipline and grievance procedure. So management were trying to twist your arm to force you to go on strike when you weren't really prepared for it. Did that work? No. The, uh, uh, I had a committee of 20 guys and they were clever blokes. Far too smart for that. No, we didn't do that. We weren't going to... You only, uh, you have to fight the battles you can win, not the ones that you're definitely going to lose. So no, we just carried on doing what we were doing, but we chose to support the 49ers 
And um, the union came together pretty well initially. I mean, I think I've told you before, but on that first night, on the 9th of July, we went over to uh, a meeting in a place called Discovery Bay on Lantau Island. And there must have been 300 pilots and their wives, because the majority lived out there. And the room was steaming with emotion and anger and all the other stuff. And a lot of the guys that had been sacked were standing in the room as well. And uh, if I, you know, as a president, I could have just said, right, I'm convening an emergency meeting now, or let's have a strike vote. I'd have got a strike vote just like that. But that was very dull. So no, it didn't work, Nick. So what were you able to do for these poor guys, these 49ers who had been sacked? Yeah, well, we said, we before the limited industrial action vote, we'd said, look, there are going to be victims and we will support you. You will get supported. And, um, you know, I did a back of the fag packet type mass in a meeting. I said, look, you know, if they fire this and this is how much you're going to have to pay. So we were psychologically prepared for victims and we now had 50 victims, 51. Um, and so we'd already decided we'll give them the big four, which is housing, food, schooling, and medical. So these guys needed that to continue to live their lives. Not all of them were in Hong Kong. You know, we had guys in Canada, quite a lot of guys in Canada, considering the number of um, Canadian pilots percentage-wise. A lot of guys in Canada, uh, just a couple in um, uh, States and uh, uh about a dozen in Australia, I think, and um, a similar sort of number in the UK. So not everyone needed housing or schooling because it's provided in their home countries, perhaps. But they needed money. And basically, the union wage, uh, union contribution at the time was 1% uh, normal dues. And we upped that to 5%, I an extra 4%. So people were now paying one-twentieth of their salary into the union to give us the cash. And that meant that we could give people about 50% of their previous wage to live on. And um, that was all, you know, I now had a pool of 50 guys to, our committee of 20 couldn't run this, you know, so, I, but I actually had 50 guys who now had time on their hands. So they, the 49ers self-administered, you know, they set up their own subcommittee, they ran the finances, they did everything themselves. Uh, how did the rest of the Cathay Pilot workforce react to this? It was obviously quite a burden for some of them to have to commit that amount of uh, money. Yeah, yeah, but they were angry, Nick. They were angry. Um, and so a lot of people were just more than happy to pay the money. You know, their best buddies um, had been sacked. You know, their, their wives uh, at home, you know, would say, do you know, Jill hasn't got any food to feed the kids tonight. You know, so the, the union responded really well, uh, by and large. Nonetheless, it wasn't all hunky-dory. Um, a lot of people had gone to Hong Kong just for the money. And um, surprisingly, uh, it's it foreign to me, but they were surprisingly tight. 400 guys left the union out of 1,350 over the next couple of years, and we called them the quitters, and nobody likes a quitter. Um, but the good thing was a lot more... Um, people joined the union. All the young lads 
that had just arrived, that was a big impetus for them to join the union because they crack it. Is this what really goes on? I better get involved. And so actually, I, to be honest, I was very proud of how the union as a whole reacted because it went on for years, years. What was the response of the other pilot groups worldwide and the International Federation of Airline Pilots Associations? We, we'd had a lot of support prior to this. It, it started in 95, 96, uh, when John Warren was president. He got more focused on operating internationally. He had a wider perspective of the whole thing. So he, he'd got... Um, a lot of we'd before this even started, we got a lot of help from IFALPA, the industrial uh, committee there, and what have you. They'd started a thing called the One World Cockpit Crew Coalition because uh, you know the airlines were forming their alliances like Sky Team, Star Alliance, One World. Cathay was part of One World, so the pilot groups within One World had got together and they were well organized. Um, so we were prepared. Uh, the uh, U.S. guys, uh, they taught us all about FANS, Family Awareness Network System. In other words, if you're going to have an industrial action, you've got to get the families on board. Otherwise, the wife, the last thing she says to her husband before he goes out to work is, don't get fired today, you know, I need food on the table. So you've got to get the families involved. So we had a very embryo but active uh, family awareness network system. So we'd had a lot of support previously, and afterwards, it was very good. You know, all of these people gave us so much advice. The Germans were great, Vereinigung Cockpit, because they they were well organized, as you expect Germans to be. Um, and uh, American Airlines, APA, uh, they gave us a lot of help as well, even though they're not, I don't know who they are now, but they weren't any Falpa then, but they were well, they gave us uh, access to their communications facilities, and we were doing. Video broadcasts and stuff, which was in 2000, was actually quite advanced at the time. So we got a lot of help. We'll leave the interview there and resume the final part of the story a mixture of sadness and victory next week. Music by bensounds.com. Fascinating stuff. I can't wait for the last part. Yeah, it's interesting, Jeff. I I almost decided not to do this because this is an aspect of our jobs which we don't really cover in APG, even though it's actually surprisingly common. It's it's a part of our job that we almost don't like to admit to because because we're um, well-trained professionals, um, we have fairly highly paid jobs, and there is a very strong element in amongst the general public who don't acknowledge that uh, and think we get a lot of money for doing very little. Um, so when you end up in industrial action, there is often, it's very hard to swing public opinion on the side of the airline pilot because an awful lot of people would say, well, you're just overpaid bus drivers. Why the hell are you going on strike? And this kind of puts the other side of the story to a certain extent. We're obviously hearing things from Nigel's point of view, and he ran the union. So that's the only side we're going to get. But having been there and actually witnessed a lot of this, I, I know this to be 
a very true part of the story. Um, so it, it's just, I just find it fascinating that um, uh, this sort of thing happens. And we often hear of young guys who are just so keen to come into our industry and they're willing to do almost anything. I think for a lot of them, they would be going, well, what the hell would these guys do risking their jobs doing this? Don't they love the flying? Don't they love this? You and I would probably understand because we've been in the industry long enough just how vicious and vindictive sometimes a company's management can be and how they will try and force um, particular contracts or conditions of service onto their pilot group. Um, and then after a few years, they will disappear out of the equation because they've done their few years as a manager and they drifted off to some other part of the airline or a different airline to leave us in the situation they left us. Uh, and uh, sometimes you do have to fight for what is very hard-earned conditions of service and you don't want to lose them. This is, this is an interesting story for me, and I hope it's a sort of educational story for those who are coming into the industry so they have some idea of what they might face one day. Yeah. Well, excellent. And he... Uh he, he uh, as you do, uh, tells the story very well, um, Nigel does. Oh, he's a smart guy. I mean, yeah. he wouldn't have uh, been in the position he was unless uh, he was uh, committed to the cause, as it were, for his airline. Um, and even chatting to him now, he's, uh, he's still very aware of what goes on. You'll just see how committed he was to the guys that were fired while on his watch, as it were, in the next uh, interview, which is the final part. All right. We'll have that uh, on the awesome. next episode next week. Awesome. Steph, were you able to yes. find a reference? I was. Okay. Yes. So the FAR that I was looking for is FAR 9121, and it's specifically about portable electronic devices. Paragraph A says that, except as provided in paragraph B, which we'll get to in a second, no person may operate... Uh, nor any operator or pilot in command of an aircraft allow the operation of any portable electronic device on any of the following U.S. registered civil aircraft. So there's two instances. One is an aircraft operated by a holder of an air carrier operating certificate or an operating certificate. Uh, yeah, so basically airlines. Or number two, any aircraft while it is operated under IFR. That says any aircraft. Doesn't oh. make any exceptions. However, then it gets a little tricky because it goes down to paragraph B. And there's a subsection that says... Um, well, paragraph B says this section does not apply to any other portable electronic device that the operator of the aircraft, basically the pilot in command, has determined will not cause interference with the navigation or communication system of the aircraft on which it is to be used. So what that basically means is that if you are the renter, owner, operator of an aircraft, um, you're allowed to make that self-certification without any sophisticated testing equipment. Huh. Um, so you can self-certify that your airplane is not adversely affected by, say, an iPad. And iPads are certainly legal for use as a um, electronic flight bag. Um, you can use ForeFlight or similar products for that. That's no problem at all as replacement for um, paper charts, although they do recommend that you have a backup set, and that can be either paper or another electronic flight bag. Um, but what I did, I actually pulled up ForeFlight just on my phone because my iPad is is dead at the moment. But I actually put it into airplane mode and you actually still get the GPS signal. So if I pull up an approach plate, um, you know, if you're using it um, 
at least for situational awareness. I can see on my approach plate here, it paints a little aircraft. Yeah, um, you're in an plate. airplane, Steph. I, I oh, know, I'm in an airplane on the ground that's here a at big my house. Cockpit. That's what you've got there. <laughs> that's what it means by airplane mode, apparently. Uh, yes, it's, uh, airplane mode. No, no, it's not. So there's still, I mean, as long as you've downloaded everything in advance, there's no reason why your phone or your iPad has to be communicating with a cell signal that might interfere in order for you to get the vast majority of that information, which should be, um, for the most part, situational awareness anyway. I so. put my phone in airplane little... mode and I don't see an airplane on mine like yours. Darn it. Oh, well. Oh, I don't have that app you though. Need, <laughs> you need, where's my camera? For flight. So, you know, it will still give me that information if I was actually in the air and flying, it would uh, You're display not going all the very relevant. fast, Steph. You're still in the no, same spot. No, I'm going, spot. Um, my, it says my ground speed here is uh, zero knots. Oh, so, right. but oh. my, oops. My How come it's not shouting stall, stall? <laughs> GPS altitude stall, is 614 stall. feet with an accuracy of 10 meters. And that's in airplane mode. So wow. uh, okay. plenty of, yes. Interesting. Although, you know, plenty at first that uh, paragraph B sounds like a very, very large loophole to me. <laughs> it's an exceptionally large loophole. And, uh, you know, I was reading through a couple different articles on it. And it's basically, uh, you know, be cautious, be prudent. Don't do reckless things. Make sure that you're using... Um, you know, standard equipment, approved equipment, um, probably not the best idea, even though you can fly, uh, you could fly your entire flight just using your four flight app without any other instruments in your cockpit, probably not what you want to be doing <laughs> Not recommended. and probably not how you want to be explaining things to the FAA should something, um, or the NTSB should something not go as planned. So, yeah, yes. Oh, and awesome. as for cell phones, um, yeah, again, that kind of falls under that, uh, you know, for GI flights, there's for part 91 flights, there's no guidance or regulation on that. So, you know, again, <laughs> user beware. Um, I think a little bit of, um, it, I mean, the same basic guidance, I think, applies to when you're in your car, when you're operating any sort of vehicle or machinery, you know, you want to make sure that you haven't lost your situational awareness, that it's not interfering with you need, with what you need to do during a particular phase of flight. So, How true. How true. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Steph. Yeah. That, um, I, I, as I said, I always learn something new on the show. Part 91.21. So there you go. All right. I'm guessing if you're flying an old World War II airplane with nothing more sophisticated than, I don't know, I'm trying to think what would be sophisticated, very little, it's not really going to affect anything, is it? It's not going to no. affect anything at all. No. And in a lot of aircraft, especially GA, GA aircraft, uh, your phone or your cell signal is probably not going to affect anything, which is right. why they have that big loophole in there of, mm -hmm. um, you, you know, yeah. basically, as long as you've determined it's not going to interfere you make that decision. So, Excellent. All right. Thank you, Steph. Um, You're welcome. Moving on with Chris, uh, who I believe uh, we'll see uh, those of us going to the uh, meetup um, day after tomorrow night, Friday night in Atlanta at uh, Manchester Arms. He says, Greeting AP, greetings, APG crew and community. This is Chris from Decatur, Georgia, and I've finally gotten around to sending in feedback. I really enjoy the podcast. The local meetups I've been able to attend here in Atlanta and looking forward to the 300 celebration in any event. I know I'm a little late in getting this to you, but in honor of L 10, 11 day, and I'm thinking L 10, 11 day. And then he put the date, which is 10, 11, October, 2011. Uh, I'm mean, sorry. October 11th. You, you know that go. Jeff? No, <laughs> apparently not. Well, everyone knew <laughs> it that. was all oh, over the internet. Yeah. L 10, 11 yeah. day. 
I thought for I sure must you have saw been. It. I don't think I was on the internet that day. Anyway, um, <laughs> I thought I would share with you a picture in honor of this magnificent plane. Attached is a picture of two first-class cabin seats from an Acme L1011 385 series that I currently own. Oh, cool. So he has a picture here that we'll put in the show notes of the uh, actual seats from an L1011. I'm not exactly sure which ship it was those from, but regardless, it is an honor to pretty own. Pretty comfy. Hmm? Oh, sorry. Those look pretty comfy. Yeah, they do. Um, let's see. It's, it's an honor to uh, own a piece of its history. Keep up the great conversations and thank you for all that you do with this great aviation community. And uh, again, that was Chris Cochran. And uh, yeah, they do look very comfy. Those must be, did he say it was first class? I think it is. Yes. Okay. First class. Yeah. Looks nice. Okay. Moving on. Uh, first officer Ben in uh, Australia. Would one of you like to uh, do this one? Sure. I could do this one. Uh, he says, hello, APG crew. I never got around to thanking you for sharing my feedback way back in episode 266. The reason for my absence is because I got a new job. Since April, I've been doing my type rating and line training for a company that does maritime surveillance for Australia in Dash 8 aircraft. The course was extremely intense with plenty of late nights spent studying for the next sim. In the past, I always thought that flying a full motion simulator would be a lot of fun, but very quickly I found out that they are just stress boxes <laughs> where nothing seems to go right for four hours with yeah. failure after failure simulated. Join the club. The line, training, <laughs> the line training was also very intensive as our operation involves us flying down to just a few hundred feet above the ocean surface to investigate vessels. Never did I think I would be hand flying a transport category turboprop aircraft so low. Even though I've been checked to line, uh, there is still so much to so much more to learn about flying higher performance aircraft. Your show has always been an inspiration to me to achieve more in my aviation career, and I hope to have the experience and knowledge of your crew someday. Keep up the excellent work, APG crew. Now I just need to find time to catch up on nearly half a year of episodes. I'm sure I'll catch the APG bug again right away. Regards, First Officer Ben. Well, congratulations, Ben, for uh, getting through that. Well done, mate. Yes, congrats. That's awesome. Sounds like a fun flying job. Yeah, I mean, despite does, all the, the stress it? and, you know, um, technically difficult hand flying challenges it presents. But yeah, yeah. but that I mean, experience. It must be really, yeah, it must be really nice to do it in Australia, though, where the weather is, generally speaking, pretty bloody lovely. Uh, doing that sort of a job in uh, a gloopy place like the UK, where you get a lot of fishbowl um, over the ocean, uh, which. For those who aren't aware, when they, the horizon merges into the sea and you don't have a clearly defined uh, horizon to keep your nose against it and you have to continually refer to your instruments to make sure you're not drifting down into the water, uh, it's very hard. I'm sure you get the odd day like that and you'll learn all about that, I guess. But I'm sure you'll have a, a wonderful time doing that job. Yeah. All right. Um, Eric writes from France. Uh, he's a patron of the greatest show on earth, bar none. Oh, uh, okay. Maybe third or fourth, but who's counting? Well, <laughs> we, he builds we us up and then he <laughs> knocks us down. <laughs> yeah. I know. Thanks. Uh, sender right. of a grand total of one audio feedback a couple of years ago and aviation geek slash Airbus fan. Hi, Nick. Hi, Hi Eric. You're a good man. <laughs> uh, I hope you get this in time and can actually plan accordingly. Because I just had a brainwave while reviewing our coming family trip to the U.S. of A. It appears that en route back to La France, we'll have a short stopover in KATL. So if you happen to be at Hartsfield on Friday, November 3rd, be advised. We'll be coming in on Delta Flight 2862 
a 757 from Phoenix at uh, mid-afternoon and flying out on 681, a 777, estimated departure 1825, if the stars do indeed align. All you'll have to do at this point uh, is point, excuse me, all you'll have to do is point me out to the nearest convenient watering hole where the beers will definitely be on me. In the meantime, y'all have a great week and fly safe, Eric. And uh, his his last name is actually uh, Pluvin. Is that the way you pronounce that, uh, Steph? Sounds good. Okay. And uh, so anyway, this is, I guess, any of you out there, APG people, uh, who might be in the Atlanta airport on Friday, the 3rd of November. I'm trying to remember if I am doing anything that day. I think I'm coming home from a trip on the 3rd of November. And uh, let me quickly here. I'm looking. I'm looking. And it says that I am returning. Yes. On a flight. Um, I'll be back in not too long after that. Yeah. Pretty close. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, let's uh, plan on meeting Eric. And uh, we'll, uh, of course, I'll still be in my uniform. So we probably can't uh, drink any alcoholic beverages or maybe I can change or something. I don't know. But if you're listening to the show, uh, yeah, uh, let's plan on that. And anybody else, again, who happens to be transiting KATL on Friday, the 3rd of November, join us. Uh, let's see. Oh, here's an interesting one. I know we're getting kind of close to that three-hour point. Uh, but uh, we had talked about on an earlier show um, or had some questions and talked a little bit about exterior light use. And uh, Jez writes, hi, Captains Jeff, Nick, Dana, and Steph. Can't we just call you Captain, too? <laughs> sure. I would include Rick, but he's too busy flying the only aircraft capable of lifting his watch to the corners of the globe. <laughs> and, of course, being a Boeing, he's more likely to need the dual ELTs his Breitling behemoth has. So, <laughs> APG syndrome. APG syndrome. Just asking for some guidance for a friend, he puts in quotes, who is concerned about how bad I, I mean, he has it. Suppose this friend recently chose his new car on the basis of which SUV had the best integration for playing podcasts with his iPhone. Would that be a bad case of the syndrome? <laughs> yes, it would. Possibly. Yes. Yes. That would be a very bad case. It's a new. It's a new symptom we haven't heard of before. Yeah, that's that is a new one. Um, you know, the list of symptoms grows longer every day. So exactly. Just add that to the. Uh, and he puts in uh, ne- next paragraph. I have a sensible question mark question though. <laughs> I'm under the flight path into a regional airport in the UK. The aircraft. Airbuses and jungle jets are typically 1,500 to 2,000 feet overhead. Sometimes at night, they have landing lights on, other times not, even the same types from the same airline. I thought there was a below 10,000 feet lights on rule, or is that just in the USA? Any thoughts on what's going on, and does it differ between the US and ICAO airspace? I know what I did there. Do you have an SOP regarding this? Um, And then in vain hope of finding the cure, you're You've convinced me to fund your IPA-driven research by finally becoming a patron, which is about time after five years of listening. I'm looking forward to the crew logs. And I know that he's, he joined us a while back, and I hope that you're 
enjoying uh, the, the several that we've had out uh, in recent uh, recent days. Um, so, um, exterior light usage is the subject he's asking about, and uh, I put a couple of documents in here that um, uh, to which we may refer if you want. And um, I'll start off with my own company's um, guidance on exterior lights usage. And they basically say, you know, when you're, they have some rules regarding, you know, when to turn all your lights on when you're taking the runway, uh, lining up and waiting for takeoff clearance. Uh, basically they want most of the lights on, but not the landing lights because the landing lights are kind of a, at least here in the U S are kind of a common, uh, signal that you have received, uh, takeoff clearance. And so, uh, you know, if you're, if you're crossing a runway and you see an airplane at the other end of the runway and they have their landing lights on, you're thinking, Hmm, I'm wondering if that's really, you know, if, if we really should be crossing the runway at this point. Um, but then when you do receive clearance, then you turn the landing lights on and that's a pretty standard, uh, uh, procedure. Except our airline doesn't do that. Okay. Um, I was going to say, yeah, there, <laughs> there could be, I'm just talking about my specific uh, company gotcha. regarding this. And, and there's another document in here basically that says that this is what they recommend. I don't, I don't, I don't think, although, uh, that there is a definitive guidance as far as actual rules that say that you must do it this way and not do it this way. So they kind of leave it up to the discretion of airlines and pilots. But, uh, the basic rule is that throw everything you can on, especially below 10,000 feet, uh, to make yourself more visible to, uh, as many, uh, aircraft as you can out there. And then once you get a little bit higher, of course, the density of the, the volume of the traffic is, um, is starting to thin out. And, and so you can start, uh, you know, turning off lights and stuff like that. Now on the mad dog, our landing lights are, uh, they pivot from the wing tips uh, underneath the, uh, left and white, right wing tips. And, uh, they are, I don't know, probably 10 to 15 inch diameter, uh, lamps out there that are in the, uh, slipstream or the windstream. And they really uh, vibrate a lot. And when you're at 250 knots, and then when you start getting a little bit faster, they even are, they, they're vibrating even more. And so our company basically says, you know, consider, retracting them when you go above 250 knots. So again, that's, that equates basically to 10,000 feet here in the U S. Um, it makes that aircraft look really large, like with the mm -hmm. way out on the wingtips there. Right. Cause most aircraft I'm always thrown off by it. Yeah. Their landing lights are more near their fuselage or maybe midway Correct. out. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is a, uh, a safety alert for operators, um, that I included here in our notes, that talks about uh, they're trying to increase um, or they've noted an increase in runway incursions and that uh, so they have some guidance for, you know, light usage uh, for, you know, holding a position and when you're clear for takeoff, when you're moving. Uh, that's another thing. I don't know if it's uh, something that you all do, uh, Nick, uh, but when the airplane's moving, whether it's night or day, um, you have your taxi light on and then when you come to a stop, you turn your light off and that kind of gives the other flight or flights, the indication that you're not going to move any further. And, um, so that kind of makes you feel a little bit better as the other pilot of the other airplane. Yeah. We treat that as a matter of etiquette or airmanship. Mm -hmm. We don't have any specific 
rules and regulations for that right. in the same way that we don't actually to my knowledge have a regulation that requires you to use your landing lights below 10,000 feet but our company also has a standard operating procedure that says you do and most airlines do um, in fact uh, you can put them on before that that's not a problem uh, Guys often uh, put the landing lights on at night during a descent so they can see when the clouds coming up and so they know when to turn the anti-ice on. Uh, and um, I will often keep them on well above uh, 10,000 feet in the climb out. Uh, if I'm concerned, it's a really dark night. There's no uh, moon or not many stars uh, so I can see cloud um, that we might accidentally go through and that might cause icing. Um in addition, uh, if you have your landing lights on, they're pretty blight, bright, and you're going through a little bit of uh, wispy cloud or something, it can throw back a lot of light at you, so some guys will probably turn their lights off for that period, and that may be what um, Jez is seeing, I don't know. But, um, of course, it's only a switch, and it's sometimes easy to forget, although for us it's part of our 10,000-foot passing checks, uh, a landing lights and LS push buttons, which means you turn on the display to give you uh, your ILS readings on the main instruments, which, by the way, if you forget, they'll eventually turn themselves on. Going, All it doesn't do is write up something that says, you stupid effer, you forgot to put the LS buttons on. It just quietly puts them on for you. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, we, uh, we put them on at 10,000 feet and we turn them off in our after landing checks. Uh, we don't uh, put them on when we've got a takeoff clearance. Uh, we put them on when we're entering the runway because I think our company says that it's just better to have every light on so that people can see you on the threshold. They don't want an aircraft sitting on the threshold without his main lights on in case someone lands on top of it. Mm -hmm. But having said that, you know, other companies have other SOPs. Right. Um, I did pull up uh, some information from the uh, aeronautical information manual in uh, section 4323, use of aircraft lights. Um, the FAA has a voluntary pilot safety program, Operation Lights On, to enhance the see and avoid concept. Pilots are encouraged to turn on their landing lights during takeoff, either after takeoff clearance has been received or when beginning the takeoff roll. Pilots are further encouraged to turn on their landing lights when operating below 10,000 feet day or night, especially when operating within 10 miles of any airport or in conditions of reduced visibility and in areas where flocks of birds may be expected, coastal areas, lake areas, around refuse dumps, etc. So again, there, there's no hard and fast rule that says you have to do this. It's just we're very highly encouraged to do it. There you go. All right. Funny so. enough, we had a, a chief pilot that said, because the Airbus has got an automatic system for turning the strobes on, we should just set it to auto and leave it there all the time. Because uh, when you land, they'll turn themselves off. When you get airborne, they'll turn themselves on. And then we had uh, an aircraft very nearly land on another aircraft. I don't know if it was even in our country, but the CAA put out a circular saying, you guys should really be putting your strobes on when you enter the runway. And of course, on the Airbus, it was activated by the weight on wheel switch. So it didn't happen when you were sitting on the end of the runway. It waited until you actually got airborne and then put them on, which was not a lot of use if you're sitting waiting for your takeoff clearance and somebody's on the approach and doesn't see you because all you've then got is your nav lights and your beacon and they're not necessarily yeah. the brightest. Yeah, things. you're not. Yeah, it's not bright at all. No. 
So we that SOP lasted about six months. <laughs> then it got changed back again. I, just, I think some airlines, or I, I don't know if this is like a, a custom uh, retrofit or whatever, but uh, I think some of the regional, maybe the regional, some of the regional airlines or airliners are are built this way, but they have lights that kind of point aft from and end up uh, from the back of the airplane, and uh, so it looks you know, when you're coming into land, you know, it's it's very obvious that there's a some kind of a vehicle on the runway uh, in the All right. Uh, well, our logo transition. lights, I guess, would uh, that are designed to shine onto the fin to mm-hmm. tell everyone what airline you're on, right? Uh, would point up like that, and we yep. have our facing lights, uh, but they're designed to play back onto the main gear, so that you can see where the main gear are through your. Um, TV cameras uh, mm. on the fin and in the belly. Um, but uh, I don't think we've got any specifically pointing up the uh, approach path, but that's actually, I think, a damn good idea. Yeah, I do too. Maybe even, you know, like flashing or, you know, wobbling or, you know, whatever, moving. Yeah, well, I really think there should be lasers. Attention. Lasers, yeah, like, like Las yes. Vegas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> moving yeah, all right. around, make sure you, you know. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, so, Hey, um, we're getting close to the end of the show here. Ralph, um, has a great question about CRJ slides, L 10, 11 pitch angle and questions about what the heck is the difference between VFR, IFR, VMC, IMC. We're going to cover that in the next episode, along with a couple of questions, um, from, uh, Glenn regarding an air Asia flight that had a rapid D and, uh, something about bed bugs on a British Airways flight. So we're going to save those, mm, Glenn, for the lovely. next next show. Uh, but finally, we're going to end this show with uh, this piece of feedback from, from Rob. He says, uh, we learn in episode 286 that Captain Nick nicked himself with a razor, a most fortunate accident considering what is printed on the O2 masks of all the Airbus products I fly. Reference attached photo. And so the attached photo here, he is uh, pulling uh, one of the uh, little, uh, I guess it's the thing that comes goes around your head that, uh, that inflates to kind of keep the mask safely uh, and firmly planted on your face. And on the mask itself, it says, beards will not seal. Does someone say so. seal? <laughs> I think they had a problem with one on a runway in uh, Alaska. Yeah, I just saw that too. Day. Yeah, <laughs> on, in uh, Barrow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, some places have deer and other uh, animals. Alaska, they have seals. So. <laughs> a seal yeah. strike. That sounds interesting. When I was first reading this, I thought I was going to say, "Oh, he meant to say a most unfortunate accident," but no, he said a most fortunate accident. Fortunate. <laughs> he thought it was fortunate that you accidentally. Yeah. Uh, for, a, for a short, very short period of time, right. <laughs> you were much safer in case you had to uh, affix uh, an oxygen yes. mask uh, on your face. Well, they they won't seal quite as well as uh, bare naked skin. Yeah, but they seal quite adequately. I'm sorry, it says use. right Thank here clearly much. in the picture: beards will not seal, not seal yeah, as well. well. <laughs> Does, well, my are you reading something will. different? Will, <laughs> my beards will not, sort of seal. My name's not Will, so that doesn't apply to me. <laughs> okay. Well, these are Airbuses. Come on. I, I think he was trying to make a convincing argument, but apparently it's not taking. Oh, well. No, it's Rob. Not. 
all the time that I'm authorized to fly with the beard, I shall continue to. But thank you very much for your concern. I, I, actually, I don't blame you. <laughs> I think that was just Rob trying to get you on something, but uh, it didn't work, Rob. Yes, You'll have to try nice harder. Try. Yeah. <laughs> okay. With that, um, it is time to shut this thing down again uh, for this week's episode. And uh, thank you, uh, Steph and Captain Nick, for joining me uh on on this episode that we had a lot of fun and uh as i said i learned a lot and i hope those uh listening learned something as well uh if you want to uh participate in the show live um follow us on social media and we put out tweets and uh stuff to let you know uh when we're uh, about to record the show and when uh, shows are released and uh so uh Steph, why don't you tell us about the social media thing? Social media, you can find us on Twitter at uh, APG Crew is the handle that will get you in contact with all of us. If you want to contact one of us individually, there is a pinned tweet at the top of the page with all of our individual Twitter handles. You can also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. And uh, that's a place where community members can post uh, various aviation related topics. We post things occasionally and respond to your questions. Um, that about does it for that part of social media all right and uh there are one little extra piece of social media um we'll have hillel tell us about that apg listeners please join us on our slack team on slack we share news and ideas we suggest episode and plain tales topics we plan meetups and events to get into the slack team please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at hi11e1 and i'll send you an invitation that's hillel at HI11E1 and see you in Slack. And don't forget to uh, head over to the AirlinePilotGuy.com website where you'll find information about the crew, the community, uh, the coffee fund, merchandise, and so much more, as well as information on how you can download your APG app on your iOS or Android device. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care. And God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Good day. a good good pilot till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline pilot guy I fly Omega Airline pilot guy He can land in heaven
and opinions expressed on the Airline Pilot Guy podcast may not represent the views, opinions, or policies of any airline, real or fictionalized, mentioned, implied, or accidentally slipped by any of the participants, guests, or feedback providers you may or may not have heard, may or may not believe you may have heard, on this or any prior episode of the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. It ain't Boeing, I ain't going.